This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Man, we got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking uh, politics and economics. In the political world, you know, in the middle of an election, does it impact the economy? Is the stock market struggling possibly because we're also in a crazy political race? I mean, I'm going to I'm going to go with yes. I'm going to give it a big fat absolutely. If all of a sudden Donald Trump makes a comment about what he's going to do with China or how he's going to negotiate stronger with these countries, then guess what, folks? Then it's probably going to impact the stock market. So we'll be talking with Dr. Art Durnev, and he is going to give us some uh, of insight from his latest research about uh, what he's finding out. He looked at 50 countries yeah. and found a trend. Interesting thing. That when there's an election, that their economy dips. Right. Unless it's, unless it's kind of uh, – unless it's maybe like Russia. Yeah. During a Russian election, not a lot of negative impact on the economy. Hmm. Wonder why. Because probably we already know who's going to win. Well, yeah. So – and he even – that's his home country. He's going he's gonna to talk about – the findings of what happens in some of these countries where there's not really a free election going on. It doesn't seem to upset the marketplace as much. So we'll get into that in just a few minutes. And it's mainly just because business starts getting nervous. Yeah. Business starts looking at things like, oh, what's this policy going to yeah. do to us? And they start pulling back and making plans for the future. Mm-hmm. And it starts affecting I just spoke numbers. to a trade association of contractors. I've spoken recently to doctors and a lot of them. The, the this political race impacts them greatly. They don't want more control over them. They don't want more laws and legislation. They don't want. They feel like they're already kind of overwhelmed with. I saw a list of the different unions that are stepping up and endorsing candidates right now. Yeah, and they're they're not necessarily going with the political ideology, but more of a policy based really? approach because yeah. they're like this if this this will affect us yeah and you know so they they take a, they go after bernie sanders or, or hillary clinton there's some that have endorsed some republicans which usually unions right? and republicans. The traditional unions were never going to go republican yeah. historically and so it's it's just interesting but they're making a choice based on policies not necessarily on some sort of like political ideology i mean times they are changing yeah hey i don't know if you heard this but to D- Donald Trump, he's not doing the debate. He's not. I came in like a Which should be good for many. Many, I'm sure, are like, yes! Now, some are thinking, what about the ratings? But honestly, honestly, how often do you think the politicians really focused on the ratings? Right? I mean, it used to be they just focused on the debate. But Donald is – he's pulling out. He's not going to do the Fox uh, debate because Megyn Kelly, she's kind of a two-bit journalist. Well, Fox is playing games, yeah. Uh, Fox is going to make a fortune. I told Fox you should give money to the Wounded Warriors. I'm not a fan of Megyn Kelly. I think she's a third-rate reporter. 
I think she, frankly, is not good at what she does. And I think they could do a lot better than Megyn Kelly. And so I'm going to be making a decision with Fox, but I probably won't bother doing the debate. I came in like the so yesterday, Trump announces that he's thinking about it. Yeah. And he put out a Twitter poll right. to all his followers. Should I go to the Fox News poll or not? Or Fox News debate or not? Then Fox News put out a release saying that, you know, kind of acting as Trump's already in the Oval Office. He's a president. And so he goes to Twitter, releases his cabinet. He's, everyone on my cabinet's gone. He just uses Twitter as his cabinet to find out how <laughs> he deals with Iran and Russia right. and all this stuff. And that's what ticked off Trump. And finally uh, he said, I'm done. You know what? And then he, then he says that... Uh, He's not going to go as far. He's something about. I have to find it real quick. But he, he said something about Megyn Kelly and. But, I mean, again, but he also and and the journalists are saying, look, you can't control the media. You can, if you don't want to participate, don't participate. But quit trying to make us conform to your view and your way of doing this. Which I think a lot of his followers love that he's controlling the media or trying to control the media. They're anti-media. Two hours ago. Trump on his Twitter feed, I refuse to call Megyn Kelly a bimbo because that oh, would not be politically geez. correct. Instead, I will only call her a lightweight reporter. Okay, so he called her a bimbo no, right No, there. no, no. He well, said, I refuse to call her a bimbo. Well, then he also refused to call her 500 other words <laughs> that he didn't have to mention. What a nut. That is crazy. Just be just step up if you want to have it step up and just I saw a theory be decent. This, I saw a theory this morning what this is all about. He's been on Fox News since that last debate where him and, and yeah, Megan Kelly had head their, head. their head to head. He's been on like 130 something times, 150 times right. on Fox and Fox Business, right? Yeah. So it's not like they're not talking to him and he doesn't have some sort of relationship and he's been on there like phone calls and in studio right. and all. He's avoiding Cruz. That's exactly what he's doing. He can't go head to head with him, yeah. Being so close in the polls, he doesn't want to make a a mistake or a give give him. I mean, you saw the well, Cruz is going after him. Well, Cruz is nasty, and then Cruz says something, and he sees an in and comes back with the New York values, yeah. And you know yeah. that whole thing, right? That could have gone any way. Trump was able to to pull that to save out, that, but. With the polls being so close, if if there's some sort of mistake that's made, well, and they'll he all can't... be gunning for him because they've got one more shot at him before Iowa. So he's like, "I'm just going to go do my own thing, and we'll have a fundraiser." No, it's funny. Yeah, he's he wants to do it for the Wounded Warriors uh, that's Project. Right. Yeah. Now the Wounded Warriors Project yesterday, CBS News does a huge expose on the fact that they're spending like 26 million dollars to fly everybody from their Jacksonville headquarters to Colorado for team-building exercises, <laughs> using money raised for wounded warriors to support this, you know, this trip that everyone gets to go on. So and, are they, and, they're not going to be in Iowa. They're going to be and, in— And so there, there's questions of how that that, money's that group spent. is being spent, and that's the, the group he's using as his charity. It's a different story, yeah. but I just found that interesting. But he's going to do a competing event in Iowa to try to drum up more attention that way, or what they think is at the, the 11th hour— an agreement struck. Okay, I'll do it. And he walks in and gets all this. Attention. I like. I like that he's not doing it. I think it's. I think honestly, go do your competing event, and you'll have all your followers that will go. I like that. And then the rest of them, let's just go see who the really good number two is. Yeah, who's the solid number two? And I guess it brings Rand Paul back to the big table. Is that what I saw? I don't know because he I, he was he was. I don't know. Kicked if they've out made a to the little table, way. and then he said he's not going to do it. I thought they were like going to bring. Rand up 
I haven't seen if they've added someone okay. to the lineup yet. But I, in a way, good. Okay. And, and again, if Donald is going to lead and take over, then just be the leader. Don't call – don't say that you're not going to call somebody something negative. <laughs> I, I am not going to call her a beep. Don't do that. And last night Man. on the uh, Megan Kelly show, yeah. she talked to Michael Moore. Oh, boy. Clip five, if you will, there. Okay, but in all seriousness, let me say this. You have done something that Jeb Bush, uh, Chris Christie, Rubio, Cruz, none of them have been able to do, which is to is to essentially frighten him, make him run, would shut him down. Would you move on from the Trump situation? But you've done, no, everybody's tried to do this for months and you did it. Megyn Kelly has officially had her career ruined right there. You, my, nobody that watches Fox News wants to hear Michael Moore praise Megan for has blowing a, up Trump. He has a movie, A Sundance, about Flint, <laughs> right? And yeah. the problems with Flint's water. So that's why he's on. Yeah. And before they even started, he goes, let me just say this. And she's like, you just ruined all my credibility. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, he praised is... her on what she's doing. What is happening with this world? Yeah. Michael Moore loves Megan Kelly and Fox News. Trump can't stand her, even though he's been on Fox News. He went News on to say, if you're going to be president, in this country, you need Fox News. Who said that? Michael Moore. If you want to be president, you can't ignore Fox News. Like President Obama has not ignored Fox News. He's been on Fox News multiple times. Has he really? I did not realize that. He, well, did, and, he, he did several. And yeah. When they cover like Super Bowls and stuff, right. you'd have uh, But other Bill politicians have been ignoring Fox News for yeah. years. Right. right. They've like banned anyone going on Fox News. But, like, as, from, but as president, you can't do that because no. you have to talk to the entire nation, not just to those people that voted for you. That's true. So- Holy cow. Yeah. Well, I, again, so here's what I would just suggest. Everybody that believes in democracy, let Donald go do what he wants to do. He's the leader, folks. He's the leader. But let's just still follow the other politicians and figure out who's the strong number two. And let's find out what happens in a debate without Donald there. Let everyone else just talk. That I, To me, I think that's really exciting. Um, another thing before we get to the headlines, because crazy, some crazy stories about Oregon – that uh, I know you'll bring up, um, and the 27-year-old NFL player. Did you hear about this? Yes. Tragic. Tyler Sash, former NFL player, had CTE, which is um, a concussion. What's it called? It's it's the degenerative brain disease from playing football, basically. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And it can only be found after they cut your yeah. head open and look at your brain. And he was in the Super Bowl with the New York um, Giants. Giants. Like four years ago, five years ago. Yeah. Unbelievable. So he, he retires, gets – there's some problems. He ends up uh, overdosing, I think, on some medication. Yeah. And uh, they do an autopsy and find out that he had this disease. That Which we've talked about on the show. Other NFL times. players that are 50, 60 years old that end up with like dementia, they yeah. have that. And this guy's 27. Ah. Uh. So it's real. It's real. The real deal. Uh, anyway, anything else going on? I know we got a lot of headlines. Terry. Absolutely. What's up? The uh, Oregon occupation protester leader Ammon and Ryan Bundy were arrested Tuesday in a highway traffic stop that ended in gunfire and left an anti-government rancher dead. Ryan Bundy also he was injured uh, in the uh, the shootout. He received a, a shot, I believe, in the shoulder, but he was uh, treated and released. Five others were also detained. The brothers were seized about 45 miles north of the National Wildlife Refuge they had been occupying uh, since January 2nd. The group was headed to a community meeting in a neighboring town. One of their supporters, Arizona rancher, rancher Lavoy uh, Finkham, 54, was killed in the shooting. He has been previously stated that he would prefer death to jail. 
He's the guy that made that statement. And he Mission accomplished. Got what he wanted. It isn't clear how many people remain at the wildlife refuge, but the group's entire leadership is in custody. The FBI says all eight people arrested will face uh, federal felony charges of conspiracy to impede officers. One occupier still at the refuge tells the New York Times that the plan for now is to wait for sunlight and see what's up. Jason Patrick says the mood is prepared but calm, but he believes the FBI is hell-bent on war. Huh. Uh, he says they said peaceful uh, resolution, uh, but now there is a dead cowboy. Yeah, they want they want a peaceful resolution, but they've taken uh, they've taken one of ours. So well, well, it seems like you just take them when they get off the ranch. It looks like it, car by car, <laughs> as they're out there on the freeway. Pull them over. Megan Kelly, as we talked about, addressed the Donald Trump issues with her. Uh, with her moderating the upcoming Fox News debate during her show on Tuesday and made it clear that with or without Trump, the debate will go on. Trump, who sparred with Kelly in August during the first Fox News debate when he uh, asked him about disparaging comments he made about women, announced Tuesday evening that he would not attend the Fox News debate on Thursday because Kelly is biased against him. See, the point is that with me, they're dealing with somebody that's a little bit different. They can't toy with me like they toy with everybody else. So let them have their debate, and let's see how they do with the ratings. On the Kelly file, her show, Kelly said that it's been known since August that she'll be one of the moderators for this debate. So he, of course, waits till now to yeah. make it an issue. Uh, he says Trump. She says Trump is not used to not controlling things as the chief executive of a large organization. But the truth is, he doesn't get to control the media. But he made a great point that he's he's a different person. He's a different kind of guy. Yeah. True dad. He's different. Uh, after the Trump campaign announced that it would not be participating in the debate Thursday night, Ted Cruz proposed a one-on-one challenge with him. It would be 90 minutes, no moderators, and would take place prior to Monday's Iowa caucus. Mm. Hey, what do you think the possibilities of that happening are? I'd say zero. Zero to none. But, hey, it's an interesting concept, and it, it, someone would have to televise it, so that'd be interesting. Uh, a U.S. Preventative Service Task Force has issued two big changes to its recommendations for depression screenings. Every adult should be screened for depression at some point, and pregnant women should be screened before or for depression while pregnant and after giving birth. Hmm. Maternal mental illness has been found to be more common than it was previously believed. The New York Times reports and new research has found that postpartum depression often starts during pregnancy. There you go. So stepping up on screening for depression. I like it. And in uh, more positive news, the Carolina Panthers headed Mm -hmm. to face the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl. Their owner announced that everyone from interns up that are employed by the team will be going to the Super Bowl. Oh, how cool. He will take them all. It's no small gesture. NFL teams have massive support staffs. Yeah. From the front office, ever just I, I don't know how many people yeah. there are. Think of but those interns, those college students that are working. In comparison, there. the Golden State Warriors from the NBA did a similar things for the NBA Finals. They took their entire staff, and it resulted in the team booking 155 hotel rooms in Cleveland. Oh my heavens! So so much money. But That's awesome. What are you going to do? By the way, speaking of the um, NBA, did you see the Warriors beat the Bulls, the Spurs? And the Cavaliers all by 30 points each. I did. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's because of one guy. I know. It's Stephen Curry. You take him off the floor, they become very average. He reminds me of myself back in the day. Really? Back when I was a baller. Really? I don't see that, but. Well, I'll show you a video. I wonder if they're going to change the rules so we can start hitting people again in the NBA. No. Because <laughs> if they did, then Stephen Curry's not making half these shots. He'd be shots. in trouble. Right. No, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> he's, a small, he's a small guy. Yeah, I know. People like it. It's good for the NBA. Keep everyone moving. Keep everyone moving. Shucking and jiving. 
Hey, um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about political races and volatility in the economic market. Sounds uh, pretty intense, doesn't it? But just the simple election that's going on right now, is it impacting our mark, our our market is marketplace. Is it impacting the volatility of our stock market? Well, we're going to be talking to a great professor, Dr. Art Derneff, who uh, who's done the research on it and with fifty countries, and uh, found some pretty interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today, uh, you know, with the elections that are going on, you know, it's a big movement and one of the great, I guess, blessings of a free democracy. However, research shows that uh, even though we have these great elections, they may not necessarily bode well for our stock market. Um, In fact, uh, according to research uh, co-authored by our guest today, Dr. Uh, Artie uh, Dernev, he is an associate professor of finance at the Tippy College of Business um, at Iowa, at the University of Iowa. And uh, he's joining us now uh, with some of his latest research talking about how national elections may increase the volatility of businesses and economic markets. We're so honored to have him here. Dr. Dernev, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. This is interesting research because you went and studied. Let me make sure I get this straight. Fifty different mm-hmm. countries during uh, political races. Is that right? Right. We, we looked at uh, major political events such as uh, national elections around the world. And then you you also evaluated the volatility of the market during those those events. Yes, exactly. There are two things happening there. Like a company in the United States can become more volatile because uh, there is uncertainty about who's going to win, for example, the current uh, election race. Or if the company does a lot of business abroad, like Apple company, right? The major operations are in China and all over the world. Then what's happening in China, what's happening in Russia, that might have an additional effect on uh, volatility of those companies. But I, I, I have to say that volatility itself, higher volatility, does not necessarily mean uh, lower stock markets or lower stock price. Right. So volatility itself doesn't do any damage. It, it, it actually, if anything, it creates new and exciting opportunities to make money rather so than lose money. How do, you, how do you see then volatility represented in uh, in a country? Is it just less spending, hunkering down of businesses, not investing as much? What does volatility uh, look like? That can happen. That can happen. First, uh, we, we observe that, not so surprisingly, stock markets, just the prices bounce around by much more. But actually, the fact is not uniform. Some companies and industries are affected by more, much more than other companies. So you can think about the biotech uh, an example would be the biotech industry and, and, and Hillary Clinton's tweet about, you know, whether companies will be allowed or not to use grant money for advertising expendi- expenditure. So she kind of like her one tweet thanked the entire industry. Hmm. So we observe different effects for different industries. So we identify more politically sensitive industries and less politically sensitive industries. For example, if the government is about to change from right wing to left wing, uh, to left wing, 
then companies and industries that are more subject companies and industries that have strong unions would would be affected more right so this is not not the entire market is more volatile but more and less politically sensitive industries but getting back to your point about slowing down in business this is a very good point because the political uncertainty it also makes companies be more risk averse and careful so if you sit on a big pile of cash and you think should i invest here should i invest there then companies slow down their investment they slow down uh, they're hiring decisions just because there's so much uncertainty right now, not just the political uncertainty, but the uncertainty over future policies, mm. that companies, uh, they're very cautious. So they don't want to spend money. And if you don't spend money, you don't invest, you don't hire people, that might have an additional negative effect and drag down uh, the stock prices. And th- 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 this is what we are observing right now. For yeah. example, Donald, Donald Trump's on on tariffs with China, companies like Apple they don't know they don't know what's going to happen. If tariffs are introduced, well, obviously it's going to be bad news for Apple's business in China, for example. It's so interesting because you we see these candidates throwing out ideas, um, and yet those ideas you know impact the the business market. They impact the economy, or potentially could impact the economic markets. A lot of people, I guess, are just sitting you know, waiting to see how this all falls out then. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And what's interesting about this presidential race is that those uh, economic uh, ideas, they, 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 they became very polarized. Again, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but right. they're extremely polarized. So uh, Trump's uh, stance on, on international trade, uh, Clinton's stance on health care, or if you ask me uh, who would be a candidate with, with, with the most drastic political ideas, well, that, 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 that would be Rand Paul, right, who says that we need to get rid of the Federal Reserve Bank and we need to reintroduce gold standards. Interesting. So, so the markets are subject to uh, political risk right now. It's about who's going to win the elections. It's about what policies they will introduce, and it's about what the impact of those policies is going to be. Hmm. And, 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 and uh, you know, I mean, on, on the other hand, there are many hedge funds and mutual funds that actually make money on political news. Oh, do they? And they're playing on the, they're just playing on the up and down. Oh, they do, they do. The number of hedge funds, uh, and, and those are kind of like very murky, murky, murky type of business and extremely kind of like unregulated. So they meet with the lobbyists, they meet with the former congressmen, they have a meeting with them, they get information in, in advance, and this information gets incorporated in, 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 in stock prices. So, yeah. so they, they they try to get this information because any type of political information right now is extremely valuable. So it's not that you know everyone is scared and everyone is losing money. It means that somebody is making good money based on uh, political uncertainty and markets. Interesting, the hedge funds. Hey, um, is it? It seems like um, overall, or maybe there isn't an overall. Like you were saying, it depends on it depends on who you are. But it seems like businesses overall would like a very pro business candidate. Versus, well, so so explain that. Explain some that. Them, some of them, you know, because what comes to my mind is that uh, I, I it, it, again, it depends on what ty- what type of business. It yeah, is. if you have unions, like if I'm, you have, yeah. I'm in Iowa right now, and one of the 
main companies in Iowa is Rockwell Collins. This is like military electronics equipment. And that company, uh, when I teach their managers, their main concern is what's going to be the next defense budget, for example. Okay. Right? So higher gov- larger government, higher defense budget, higher de- military spending, that goes against pro-business, right? right. Companies like Rockwell Collins, that would mis- that they would immediately benefit from larger budget. So... Well, I guess too, like your your article also talked about, it depends if you're an exporter or an in, you know an importer. Uh, if you're an exporter importer, then tariffs and you know you know the State Department. You might want bigger right. government to create a lot stronger. Of business abroad and and the entire the entire world is getting much more volatile. Uh, there are more and more political geopolitical risks around the world. So if you do a lot of business around the world, even if in those countries they don't have the elections. Their foreign policies are directly affected by the United States uh, foreign policies. Right. So companies do still do business in the Middle East. Companies do business in Russia. They do business in Ukraine. Depending who the U.S. president is going to be, the reaction of those companies, just uh, of those countries looking ahead, might be different. Mm. And, and you know, uh, for example, right now what drags the stock market is uh, down is lower oil prices. Right. So right. an oil price, this is number one commodity that purely is purely affected by geopolitical risks around the world. That's true. So I mean, it can be an, an additional effect through commodities, for example. And everything going on in the Middle East um, and right. the need to – and Russia too producing so much more oil and now Iran being able to produce oil. Um, exactly. It, yeah. Exactly. And, and the Iran decision to produce more oil – it was affected by the lift of the sanctions right. uh, by the United States. So who we're electing, it's it's going to impact the pocketbook one way or another. Yes, exactly. Yeah, fascinating. Let's do this. We're speaking again with Dr. Art Durnev um, from the Henry B. Tippy College of Business at the University of Iowa. We're going to take a break, come back. And uh, the interesting thing about his research is the cost of the free elections may be um, – actually increased volatility of the markets because in certain areas where there's not so free elections, their volatility isn't quite uh, so up and down. It's uh, it's a lot more stable. We'll talk uh, to uh, the good Dr. Durnev when we come back more on the impact of our vote, the impact of your political elections on your pocketbook, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, as the political debate goes up, believe it or not, it is going to impact the volatility of the market and the business market, especially businesses are impacted by the decisions that will be going on in Iowa and every other uh, every other uh, election around the country and every other site um, around the country, as well as globally. So we've asked um, Dr. Art Durneff to join us. And uh, Dr. Art Durneff is a professor an associate professor of finance at the Henry B. Tippey College of Business at the University of Iowa and the associate editor of International Review of Finance. His research interests are primarily focused on corporate finance, political cycles, governance, 
corporate social responsibility and financial markets um, and, and the development of financial markets. Um, Dr. Dernev, we again welcome you back to the show. Thank you. You know, one of the things I loved about uh, your article was the, was the insight that uh, your research is showing about the kind of non-democratic races in right. other countries like Russia. Talk about, talk about what's the difference between their elections and business volatility versus the United States. <laughs> right. Well, uh, obviously, when, when, when you have a more authoritarian regime, it's, it's much easier to predict yeah. Who the next leader is going to be, right? <laughs> and no one's going to, no, no one's really upset or, wa- or no yeah, one's wondering. So, so, so it might be a very non business friendly, uh, very unfriendly regime to businesses, but as long as it's stable, uh, businesses seem to adjust and they have great uh, survival skills. So we didn't want to say that uh, having dictatorship is better than having democracy. Right. Uh, absolutely not. However, at least during the election periods, uh, stock markets just kind of, you know, they swallow it up and they don't really care unless something drastic happens. Hmm. The problem with, with dictatorship is that, uh, well, we know what the problems are. Most of them are not, not business friendly. And, and, and you've you got to have a certain degree of media freedom. You've got to have a certain degree of uh, people's freedom yeah. for them to operate efficiently. However, there's always a good example of, of, of Singapore, right? It's, 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 a, it's a tiny one-city country that developed itself extremely fast. I wouldn't call it a complete dictatorship, but it was pretty much one person, uh, one rule. And, and, and that, that's the country, which is a textbook example, how the country can become from, from, from dirt poor to one of the richest countries in the, in the entire world. Mm. It, will remain, it will remain the same. Is the volatility healthy, Dr. Derneff? It seems like, um, in a way, I mean, obviously businesses want it to continue running as is, but it might also allow an opportunity every four years, like in the United States, for a business to reevaluate itself, to redirect itself. Uh, well, uh, yes, yes, unless, you know, uh, well, it, 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 again, it, it depends on, 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 on how gradual those uh policy shifts are, hmm. if you take, uh, go from one extreme to another extreme, uh, for example, like if you, if you just, uh, American companies pay very little in corporate taxes, right? right. Um, they use lots of offshore accounts, lots of legal and semi-legal offshore schemes to hide their profits, right? And, uh, for example, if, if, if you just introduce a drastic tax reform for U.S. businesses, then, then, then any type of drastic uh, reform would have a much more significant impact, actually. Hmm. So in terms of whether businesses uh, have time to evaluate themselves, this, this is I'm, I'm not so sure about. Talk to me about this. Just as a finance expert, a business expert, we, we've heard and we all know um, kind of how the healthcare initiatives and program that, that President Obama has initiated, we, we know how it impacted you know, everyone knows how it kind of impacted them personally. What did it do to the business world? What did it do to the volatility of businesses and the economic stability of businesses? I, I don't think right. we ever really – we hear a lot of hype about that. But really, what do you see was the impact years later now? Uh, well, it's, uh, there hasn't been really done any research on this that, that would come to my mind that like, the, the, the fact 
of Obamacare. From what I know from my personal experience, uh, anything related to healthcare uh, right now has a lot of potential, no matter, no matter what the policies are. There is lots of uh, restructuring going on. There is lots of partnership going on between hospitals and, and biotech uh, industry. This is still the industry that's in the kind of like constant flux. So we will see money being poured in, bubbles being created, bubbles, doors. But this is probably still and will remain one of the most exciting uh, industries to invest into. Hmm. So at the same time, this is the most sensitive industry. Any type of negative, tiny negative news crashes their stock prices. Yeah. And a specific, I'm not talking about hospitals. I specifically talk about, about biotech, biotech. Biotech, yeah. Yeah, there is, it's, again, it's a very non-transparent industry. There are billions and billions of dollars uh, poured in. And, and it seems to me that the politicians are always try to like, regulate and over-regulate it. And I'm not in favor of this type of over-regulation because, you know, if you increase the number of years, if you double the number of years, how long it takes Food and Drug Administration to approve a drug, then companies will stop innovating, and this type of innovations they smoothly flow to where some markets are freer, like ironically China, Hong Kong, the uh, East Asian and South South Asian uh, region. Hmm. So uh, anything related to healthcare and biotech remains a very like good and exciting investment opportunity. But this is the type of industry that's that's extremely, extremely sensitive to any type of polit- political uh, political events. Yeah. When you sit there, uh, Dr. Durnev, in, I mean, you, in Iowa City, um, what what goes through your mind? Like tonight, are you are you one who will go watch the debate? And then as you watch the debate, <laughs> is everything just no, going through yeah, your financial I was, mind? Yeah. <laughs> I was I was waiting for this question. Uh <laughs> No, business as usual, because we are absolutely spoiled by how much we, Iowans, how much attention we get from the politicians. And right, we all right. know the reason. So I just see the candidates from the comfort of my office, and I really don't have to step out. And if I step <laughs> out and go, go fill up my car with gas, the chances I'm going to run in, into, like, I, I, I ran into Hillary Clinton at the gas station already twice in my life. Did you really? So, <laughs> How rare yeah, is that? Yeah, yeah. So business as usual, and no, no, not ignoring it, not ignoring it. But you know, there is not really much surprise factor because we are going to get more and more of uh, before uh, the primaries and the presidential elections. I always going to get more and more attention, and we I always feel great about it. Mm. Yeah, an important state. Yeah, no, you are an important state, and especially for at least the next few days, huh? Then we'll just absolutely. That's just like every absolutely. other state. Then you, then we forget about you for four years again. It's the saddest, <laughs> saddest thing. Um, talk right. about uh, a little bit. Um, if if you had to look at the current election, I guess it's just maybe it's too hard of a question um, because is there one candidate that seems more? Uh, business friendly on the GOP side and is there one that seems more maybe union regula- regulator regulation friendly on the democratic side is there a way to choose who who's going to create the least volatility uh-huh. so, yeah who's going to create the least volatility hmm. well you know uh, we have a great uh, electronic uh, electronic trading system in Iowa actually University of Iowa is famous for that this is where people make bets 
who the president is going to be. Uh-huh. It's a real market. People play with their 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 own money. So I started every morning looking at the quotes. And 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 I, I trust the market. I trust the market's efficient. They have great, uh, they have great prediction power. So the market is about uh, who's going to win the primaries, who's mm. going to win the elections. Well, but your question was different. The question was about who's more pro business, less pro business. Yeah. Well, um, that's 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 well, it, it's it's easier to say from the democratic side because there seem to be only like two candidates. Right. Exactly. Right, from, from from the democratic side. So, well, obviously, uh, Hillary Clinton would be. In my view, more pro business for yeah. this reason, right? Like, she so, she would probably hate you to say that because because uh, <laughs> she doesn't want you to say that she's pro bank, pro business, pro you know you know yeah, bailing well, out. I but mean, they're politicians; they have to cater exactly. to the median voters. They cannot take extremes, right? Right. Uh, things are much more exciting to follow uh, if you look at the uh, if you look at, look at the GOP side, you know, because. Um, I would say probably probably Ted Cruz. Mm. Ted Cruz, you know, I I would say probably Ted Ted Cruz is more pro business. Is it, uh, how do you see hand, Donald? How do you see Donald as an economics expert, um, business right, expert? Donald Trump. Okay. Is he uh, does he create more volatility just because he talks so much? Uh, there are two effects here. On the one hand, he can create a lot of volatility because he goes from one extreme to another. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, and, 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 and this is what I, I don't share his views, but I like him as a politician. On the other hand, he bluffs a lot. Yeah. So what he says does not necessarily represent his views or his advisor's views or what the policies are going to be when he becomes elected as the president. Right. Yeah. So we also have very exciting research going on right now. When we upload, there is such called uh, text recognition software. We upload their actually actual political speeches, and we run it through very complicated software, and we analyze not what they say, but also how they say it, whether they say it optimistically, pessimistically. It's a big research area in, in, between linguistics and finance whether they use certain tone, uncertain tone. Huh. So what, what we absorb, and this is not uh, really a paper written about, some preliminary results, we actually absorb, if we try to figure out what the short-term impact on what politicians say, then the stock markets or particular companies, they don't really react so strongly uh, to what uh, Donald Trump is saying. And I think one of the reasons is that some things, what he's saying, everyone understands that he tries to get the vote, but it does not necessarily represent his views. Right. But he comes from the business side. Yeah. Right. And now we might have an independent candidate, Bloomberg. Right. Whoever comes from the business side, I'm a business school professor. I mean, I mean they seem to be a little bit more pro-market. Right. They seem to be a yeah. bit, uh, pro-market. Pro business and 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 one thing Trump is known for too is being willing to make a deal, right? So he might be bluffing, but he's he's also will make a deal. He'll bend. Right, right. Yeah. And 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 I look at the I just uh, look at the quotes. Uh, this was called the electronic uh, Iowa electronic market. What I mentioned, people bet on who the candidate is. Yeah, yeah. What what do you see there? 
from GOP side, I see 36% is for Trump, followed by Cruz, 24%. Uh, all of them have to like sum up to one. Hmm. So it's 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 from GOP side, it's Trump uh, leading. Okay. Trump leading. And on the on the Democratic side, and this is in the electronic. This is the electronic kind of. Yeah, if you yeah, you can look it up. Uh, Iowa electronic markets. Okay. Iowa electronic markets. Uh, well, Hillary is leading from the uh, from from the, the uh, Democratic side. Hmm. But then there is another type of contract being traded, where who's going to win uh, the end result, Republicans or Democrats? And right. There, what I see, I see sixty percent. Democrats, 40% goes to Republicans. Huh. Interesting. And those markets seem to predict uh, pretty well. Yeah. But that might change. That might change. Oh, That's interesting. Yeah. Life quotes. Well, we appreciate you. Again, um, great, great work. And uh, doc- Dr. Art Dernev um, from University of Iowa helping us understand the market volatility and its connection to the political election process. Interesting stuff, folks. Uh, wow. When you think about it, so much of this is hinging on the the election, right? And also we hear about the money that some of these companies are throwing into some of the elections. And it might be to decrease or to manage the volatility, maybe to have a better advantage um, for their own companies. Interesting. Boy, the tangled web. We're going to take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you make a decision about the government, I just heard $150 trillion worth of assets are owned by the United States government. $150 trillion. But it seems like if you were running a business with $150 trillion in assets and you could, I don't know, get a 2% return, you'd probably be able to handle a lot of our problems in the government. $150 trillion. But here's the problem. So do you remember the big uh, snowstorm in D.C., the blizzard? Uh, What if I told you that they're not actually sure how much snow hit, how much snow landed or fell? Listen to this. There was a lot of snow. They know that in Washington, D.C. But as a result of the blizzard that hit the eastern U.S. over the weekend, they're not sure how much fell in the capital, and they may not ever really know. The district official total was 17.8 inches, about 45.2 centimeters. But according to Washington Post, that number falls very short compared with other cities in the region. In New York, for example, there were 26 inches of snow. The problem, it turns out, um, was they actually had too much snow. A small team of weather observers tasked with monitoring the snowfall at Reagan National Airport in D.C., lost their snow-measuring device to the elements halfway through the blizzard. So halfway through the blizzard, their little measuring stick disappeared. I'm going to bet it's in a snowbank. It's like I can almost just see they put down like a ruler, a little 12-inch ruler, snowed over. 
So we know it's more than 12 inches. Um, listen to this, though. They lost their snow measuring device due to bad weather. The team was forced to abandon their snowboard, the improvised device that they used to tally totals when it became buried under a drift. National Senior Weather Observer Mark Richards on Sunday stood by the accuracy of the reading, saying his team did the best it could under the difficult conditions. Don't they teach kids how to measure snow? I mean, didn't you don't, did you ever do that growing up? I mean, well, you were in Hawaii. Well, that was when you were older. Yeah, um you just took, in, in go out Seattle we only had about an inch at a time. Yeah. So we didn't yeah, you, ever learn that. Well, you know, in the in the Mountain West, you you know, you're that's a survival technique. You've got to know how to measure snow. Okay, that's that's why you're still alive, right? That's why I'm still alive. I mean, the funny thing is, in the middle of the blizzard, I think I had eight inches of snow in my front yard. Not a problem. And I measured it. Because it was measured. That's why That's yeah. why you survived. But it, it just seems crazy to me that we can't, with all the experts in the world and the head of, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard in D.C., we can't figure out how much snow landed. But they lost their measuring device. I don't want to critique them. Just... You might want to plan on that next time. Just I'd get a tape measure. Call me old-fashioned. Hey, um, anyway, it's hard. It's hard stuff, folks. Interesting hour. We've learned a lot about uh, the economic impact of the people you're selecting. So make sure as you're watching the debates tonight that you're, uh, you're listening. Who's going to impact the volatility of the marketplace the most? Don't just listen for the best soundbite. Listen for who's going to impact your pocketbook. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll come back next hour talking about uh, the advice you get. Sometimes the best self-help isn't the best self-help. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Got a great show for you today. Today we're going to be talking... um, with uh, some Yale researchers about ad- people that give advice. I guess I'm included here. About you. People that give advice from, you know, any kind of advisor, spiritual advisor, um, nutritional. Madam Cleo. <laughs> Madam Cleo. Sorry. But about the kind of the psychology behind giving advice and if 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 the advice is really good advice because sometimes many times it's not and it might keep some of us spinning so how to kind of sort through all of the advice and the advisors the good the bad the ugly of uh, those that are giving advice you know now, how, I, how I, to make sense of it all. i take advice from people that i either know have experience yeah. in whatever my question is or I respect them on a personal level. Is that why you never take my advice? Well, I, you know, we're working on that. I don't it's think a developing it situation. It doesn't feel like we are. <laughs> it's a developing. Like I check with my dad. 
Yeah, see, that's cool. You know, so you, but that, yeah. he's my dad. I've always checked with but, my dad. But you might not ask your dad for advice about how to set up your router. No, I ask my brother. Yeah, that's where you go to your brother. Yeah. Right. You just have your 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 close your go-to, people. go-to people, and then you find out that when you ask those go-to people, and then those two go-to people talk to each other about how ridiculous it is that mm-hmm. I ask for advice, and then they make fun of me. Yeah. I found that out. One of the things I'm finding out in the world is most of us really actually already know what we're supposed to do. Yeah. And we just don't want to do it. But it's good to have someone tell you that and you're like, I know, I know. And then you just go do it. Yeah. A little bit of encouragement, a push that way. I mean, you've talked about just kind of generally about some of the situations you deal with. Yeah. And a lot of it's just common sense stuff, but the people – don't want to do it, and you kind of give them a push. <sighs> common sense is or not a, common practice. Or a nice swift kick, and but off see, they go. it's different when they're paying you. See, one of the things I found, anybody can give advice, but if with me, I give them advice, but then I know I'm going to see them in a week. Mm. And but I usually give them advice based on what we just spent 50 minutes talking about. If that makes sense, so yeah. I feel like I'm a little deeper into what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And then I usually try to get them to just kind of tell me what they already their conscience is already telling them they should do now. Now that we've explored this, of everything we talked about, what is the advice you think you need to go implement now? And then I hold them accountable. Hmm. But accountability is different than advice giving, and that's one of the big disconnects. Is a lot of the people that are giving advice don't they don't come back with accountability. There's not an ownership to the device to the advice. Like I. You know, I feel bad if I gave advice that was like so far off the mark that it didn't help or it actually hurt. But I actually know that relatively quickly because they'll email me. (laughs) (laughs) This didn't work. That wasn't even close. Anyway, we'll be talking about the professional, you know, kind of advice giving and getting and how to kind of cut through, you know. And if you're if you're somebody too that's afraid to give people advice, some people want some advice. So anyway, it's pretty cool uh, little discussion with um, Jason, Doctor Jason Dana, who's an assistant professor of management and marketing at Yale School of Management. So we're, we got the big hitters today. Um, speaking of advice, any advice for Donald Trump, who is now not going to participate in the debate? No, because anything you would ask him or tell him to do would be common sense and he goes kind of contrary to that most of the time yeah he says things he shouldn't say he does things he shouldn't do and he it always works to his benefit so he knows better right i mean he's a different kind of guy he even says so so he can't be treated like everyone else i mean all the other candidates will just show up Mm -hmm. they'll just show up but you know he knows that Fox News is going to make a lot of money on that debate. And he, you know, he knows that. It, isn't that weird? It doesn't seem like last, you know, the last go around, last election cycle, doesn't seem like people were into ratings for no. debates. Well, they weren't. You didn't have the background in reality TV. Yeah. I, I don't remember ever Kennedy asking to be paid for a debate. No. It just seemed like that was what you do to win an election. But it would be interesting if Trump's not there and the ratings are much lower. Yeah. And he's like, see what I mean? It's all me. Right. Right. Which it very well may be. 
It might, it might all be him. It's, but it's also, you know, it's the same reason you don't have to put Trump there. You could put um, a temperamental eight-year-old okay. with a machete <laughs> and, just, and just, you know, and sugar him up. And it might have the same appeal for ratings. Okay. Because people were going to see, is that, that, kid, that, is that kid going to go off? That very well could happen. I mean, I'm not saying that Donald is Get, an eight-year-old. Kid president. Have you seen the, the YouTube videos, kid president? Is that the guy? Yeah. Get that kid. Get him up there. Get him sugared up. Give yeah. him a machete. Have him at it. <laughs> <laughs> See what he has to say. Yeah. I just think, I don't know. I, so my, my view is this is good. That's fine. If Donald wants to do that and he wants to go raise money for a charity, good. Go. Do it. For the rest of us, let's just go listen to the other candidates and actually find out what they have to talk about. It is going to buy a little more time probably. With him off the stage. With him off the stage. Yeah. You had a really interesting theory last hour that maybe oh. this is about Donald not wanting, you know, a few days before the big election in Iowa, not wanting to go head to head with, with what's his name, Cruz. Because Theodore Cruz, he's going to be a cruise missile. Now, we've talked about last well, – apparently back in August they announced who would be moderating this debate. Yeah. So Trump waits until this last couple days to bring up the issue of who's – yeah, moderating the when debate. Cruz was really close, and then Cruz starts closing in, and then he decides he's not going to be there. So the idea is that he's avoiding any confrontation with Cruz that could lead to Cruz overtaking him in the polls. Motivation theory would say if Donald Trump is moving away from the debate, he's motivated to. It's not that he's probably moving away from the anchor. I would hardly doubt because who has he ever walked away from? What fight has he ever walked away from? He usually steps toward the fight. Yeah. And and he last time when he took her on, it looked really ugly at times, but it also looked good because he was taking on the media. So there must be something he's more motivated to walk toward. Like – or it might be he wants to walk to not have to talk to Ted Cruz. And that's a good way to do it. That's a great way to do it. And then throw her under the bus. And he's not calling her. He's not calling her a bimbo. He said on Twitter, I am not calling her a bimbo because that would be politically incorrect. He is saying she's a bad reporter, though. By the way, nobody that I knew of brought up if he's calling her a bimbo. Nobody asked that question. <laughs> so that's, that, is the, that is the art of the deal. That's his book. Yeah. The art of the deal He's got to write is call him what you want to call him, but say you're not calling him. I'm not calling you an idiot. He's got to write a book about that. Yeah. The way he's he's ran his campaign where he's able to say whatever he wants but does it in a way where he didn't say it. I didn't I didn't say Just go you're ahead a loser. List all the methods that he has used and why <laughs> they're so effective. It really is crazy. So be, it could be a really nice that's tomorrow night, tomorrow Thursday night. night. So for some of you, you know, there's no longer NFL on Thursday. So Unfortunately. Now you get the great debate. And I'm not sure if the 8-year-old petulant machete kid will be there. But maybe. Could be. Special guest appearance. Could be great for ratings. Let's uh, get to the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. Ammon Bundy and his brother Ryan Bundy and three other members of the militia involved in an armed occupation at the Oregon Wildlife Refuge were arrested Tuesday night during a highway traffic stop. The Oregon State Police and FBI confirm in a joint statement. Authorities confirm that one militant was killed after gunfire erupted. Another individual suffered a 9 
non-life-threatening injury. That was Ryan Bundy. The Oregonian reported that Ryan Bundy had the minor gunshot wound. Police say those arrested face felony charge of conspiracy to impede federal officers. I've been monitoring a live feed from the compound. This is real. Okay. And everyone's kind of hanging out eating breakfast. So we'll so, be maintaining uh, that. Way, what was being served for breakfast? Muffins. Someone okay. was yelling out, do you want any muffins? Oh, wow. <laughs> this is breaking news. I mean, a man has died <laughs> in this fight, and meanwhile, back at the ranch, they're Yeah, they're muffins. live streaming on YouTube, so okay. I'll, I'll keep an eye on that. If anything happens, I'll let you know. At the moment, a guy just woke up, and it's frosty. It's 20 <laughs> degrees outside in Oregon, so... Uh, immediately after Fox News announced the lineup for the candidates for Thursday night, Thursday evening's Republican debate, frontrunner Donald Trump told the media he most likely will not participate. He said, I'm going to have something else in Iowa. We'll do something where we raise money for veterans and the wounded warriors. He said in a press conference, Trump added that he doesn't like that Fox released a statement mocking his threat to boycott the event over his nemesis, Megyn Kelly's role as moderator. I didn't like the fact that they sent out press releases toying, talking about Putin and playing games. I don't know what games Roger Ailes is playing, but uh, what's, what's wrong over there? Something's wrong. But when they sent out that press release talking about, I said, what are these people playing games? So most likely, I won't be doing the debate. Several minutes later, Trump's, a Trump spokesman confirmed to the Washington Post that Trump is definitely not going to show up to the debate. His word is bond, the campaign spokesman said, later confirming this decision, calling the debate a bad deal. Hmm. And Gergen, uh, what's his name, the head of the Kennedy School of Politics okay. that's on CNN a lot, he, he agrees. He agrees with Trump. You, if you're going to go on a media source, and they did send out those crazy emails like that. I mean, that was... They did. You can't trust that you're going to be able to represent yourself, so just don't. Just don't. Just don't do it. See what happens. Yeah. Maine Governor Paul LePage said in a radio interview Tuesday that he supports the public execution of drug traffickers via the guillotine. Oh, boy. LePage said the issue with mere, uh, the, he takes issue with mere prison sentences, arguing that they aren't tough enough. What we ought to do is bring the guillotine back. LePage added that he doesn't understand why anyone would take issue with this proposal. Um, I I think I don't think you have to bring back the guillotine because I have a better answer than the guillotine. Taze it. You don't need a guillotine. I think, you, I think you he just, wants something more permanent. Well, you can do the taser permanently. He wants a guillotine. Oh, geez, the guillotine. Off with this. The, the perpetual taser. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. In other news, Seattle police say they're searching for two suspects after two people were killed and three others were injured in a shooting at a homeless encampment Tuesday night. Police say they responded to reports of gunfire in a wooded area and found five victims. One woman was dead at the scene. Four victims were taken to the hospital. One of those, a male, died. Two victims in critical condition and another was in serious condition, authorities said. All the victims live at a camp known as the Jungle, which is a homeless encampment on some... uh, some government ground there. Seattle Police Chief Kathleen O'Toole said authorities have several leads and are interviewing witnesses. Police did not release any further details about the two persons of interest, but said they have reason to believe the shooting was very targeted and it was among a dispute with people who knew each other. Hmm. So it wasn't someone attacking homeless people. It was people attacking someone because they knew who they were and they had some beef with them. And right. So something happened that way. Um, um, news kind of close to where we're broadcasting from. A directorial debut has become the most talked about film at the Sundance Film Festival with the Fo- with Fox Searchlight paying a record-breaking $17.5 million in an all-night bidding war against Netflix, Sony, and the Weinstein Group in order to snap up its distribution rights. The Birth of a Nation takes its title from 
D.W. Griffith's racist 1915 film of the same name in which the Ku Klux Klan are positively portrayed. The 2016 Sundance hit instead tells the true story of the violent Virginia slave revolt in 1831. Nate Parker, the director and screenwriter, plays the lead role of Nat Turner. Hmm. So the the news is the 17 million that all these companies are, are fighting over Fox Searchlight, which distributes Fox uh, movies for you know general release. Yeah. And apparently Netflix uh, bid more money, a bigger amount of money, but Fox said they'll, they'll have a wide distribution of this movie across the nation. Interesting. And the, 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 the movie makers like that deal better than just being on Netflix. Hmm. It's, isn't it ironic? The whole uh, you know hullabaloo about the Oscars yes. not being diverse enough, and yet the very hit of Sundance is... Such a diverse, focused movie. It is. Interesting. And then just the money and, and, and who's money. coming in to buy it. Yeah. Amazon's up there trying to buy movies. I think Hulu's involved too. I mean, who to funk? All these crazy high-tech companies are now the big movie players. Except Fox has better distribution. They do. Hmm, interesting stuff. Who to thunk? Okay. How do you know if you're getting good advice or not? Is the advice biased or unbiased? Can you tell? Well, there may be some psychological uh, issues at play anytime you're advising somebody or being advised, and it might impact your ability to actually be unbiased in the advice you're giving. Like, think about this. If you have a biased um, accountant, are they giving you the purest information possible for you to make your accounting decisions? Or are they biased in their information. So is the advice good or is it bad? We'll be talking to an expert. Dr. Jason Dana will be joining us in his research um, that is all about good advice that's often bad, folks. Dr. Jason Dana from the Yale School of Management. He's an assistant professor there. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, I found an article here um, that it it just rings totally true to what I do every day. So I, you know, I'm a relationship coach and a life coach, and I I give a lot of advice every single day. And so when we found this um, article uh, called Why Good Advice is Often Bad, I wanted to talk to the author of the article, um, who's Dr. Jason Dana, and um, really, when you think about it, you're, we are all being advised constantly, right? So uh, whether it's just going to the doctor or your insurance advisor or your financial advisor or in school, you have career advisors, academic advisors, nutritionists, spiritual advisors. You're constantly getting advice from people. But sometimes you're, you might notice that you take certain people's advice. You don't take certain people's advice. And um, maybe the advice that you're getting isn't neutral. Maybe it's seriously biased. And is biased advice healthy, good advice? So we've we've brought on um, Jason Dana to join us. He is a professor, uh, assistant professor of management and marketing at Yale University. He's here to talk to us a little bit about this topic and help us understand what, what we may think is good advice is often not so good, maybe even bad advice. Uh, welcome, Jason Dana, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Thanks, Matt. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. You bet. And great to have you on. And the great uh, research that you've been doing, Jason, with uh, Daly and Kane as well. I know both of you have been a big part of, of researching this good advice, bad advice. Talk to us about um, advice, because not all advice is is kind of neutral, right? It's it's biased advice many times. Yeah, it's it's hard to give neutral advice, and, and particularly what we've been looking at lately and what we wrote the article about was uh, why advice differs from choice. And by that I mean why people do one thing for themselves but then recommend something different when they advise someone else. Interesting. And yeah. what, what are you finding about that? Why, what are you, why would somebody give advice one way but do something another way? Uh, well, we, we have a number of reasons why this is the, the case. Um, you know, maybe be better to start off or, or good to start off with a kind of a concrete example yeah. that we encountered. Uh, so uh, a couple years back, some colleagues and I uh, surveyed some obstetricians and gynecologists that are in the American College of Gynecologists. And, and since a lot of OBGYNs are uh, female, we were able to ask them how they advise their patients regarding mammography. But we were also able to ask them about their personal practices mm. regarding mammography. And what we found is that they were telling their patients to get mammograms earlier and more often than they themselves were getting them. Interesting. So, so that, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, as someone who studies uh, ethics, it, it interests me because I think most people embrace a principle that's sort of like the golden rule. Right. right? You should do to other people what you, what, as you'd want them to do to you. But when it comes to advice, uh, people are doing one thing and telling people to do something else. So, you know, we have limited uh, ability to follow up with some of these physicians. It's hard to get physician time. But, you know, you think about all the reasons why that might be. Yeah, why like, are they giving? Why are they? Why, why, would, I, why would I give advice um, that is kind of the higher standard than I'm living? I guess is it me trying to protect them? Uh, to some degree, right? So, so look, we could say cynically, you might think that in the, in the case of physicians, for instance, that maybe they're just practicing defensive medicine, right? They, don't, they want to prevent lawsuits. Or if you want it to be even more cynical, uh, perhaps you think you know, maybe they're getting compensated for referrals. But let's suppose that, that most physicians are indeed well-intentioned, right? That, right? that in fact, what they want to do is help you and they're just trying to give the best advice they can, well, there's a lot of less sinister possibilities of why people would, would advise you differently than they choose for themselves. So, you know, maybe, maybe the advice in this case is good, but they're just procrastinating it on following it themselves. You know, so there's that old expression, the cobbler's children go shoeless. Right, exactly. So, so maybe they should be, the, the physicians should be getting them earlier, and they just aren't. Uh, it's also possible that, you know, maybe they strategically exaggerate their advice. So maybe they expect that patients will be a little bit slow to take up their advice. So they push it a little bit earlier and a little bit harder to make sure that it's followed up. Hmm. But what we're finding across a lot of domains, not just medicine, but all, all domains of advice, is that beyond all these factors, people just have a basic psychological tendency to be more cautious for others than they are for themselves. If you want, you could call that a, a paternalistic bias. Hmm. More cautious for others than we are for ourselves. So the financial advisor might be more cautious with someone else's money than with their own. Indeed. 
correct. Interesting. Now, is that just good psychology or is that maybe that's good business? Maybe that's how they stay in business is being more cautious with everyone else's money. Yeah, it's both, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so it's interesting. Um, you know, one of the reasons that advice is more cautious than personal choice is indeed this worry about maintaining a relationship or being held accountable for your advice. So it's funny, you know, because we think that advisors ideally should be held accountable for right. the advice that they give right. or that we should want to take advice from someone that we like or that we trust. And this is kind of counterintuitive and perverse, but that can lead to problems. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, really, because there's a, you know, so there's a general psychological principle that bad has a stronger impact than good. And this is true, especially in impressions of other people. So, you know, you can expect to be blamed more for bad outcomes that might flow from your advice than you're credited for good outcomes. And if you think of it that way, you know, giving cautious advice can shield you from blame. So you've probably never heard stories about people who are irresponsibly cautious on someone else's behalf. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's true. So look, if you, if you expect to be held accountable or you want to maintain a good relationship, sometimes it's more important to give cautious advice than it is to give the best advice. Wow, that's kind of – which means – we are, that's the quality of our advice is lowered in an effort so. to be cautious and protected. That's correct. I mean, that's kind of unintuitive to some people. Some yeah, right. People think, well, you know, careful advice isn't that good advice. Isn't it better to be safe than sorry? But what we're talking about here is overly cautious advice relative to what I would do as an expert myself. So, so if I told you to invest your retirement in a money market fund, or even worse, I just told you to stuff it in your mattress. Well, you wouldn't lose anything. Right. Nothing awful would happen. But you'd miss out on years and years of gains that you'd get from, say, investing your money in an index fund that just tracked the stock market. So in the end, you'd be much worse off if you followed that overly careful advice. So true. Um, is it – and then all of a sudden – and nobody knows. Nobody knows because I didn't lose all your money. You, you feel, I guess, pretty good, but you only got a 3% return instead of a 10% return, but you didn't even know you could get a 10% return. I mean, it's yeah. it's a game. It really is. I guess that's the downside of all of us that kind of are living more to protect and are more fearful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You don't generally think about relationship concerns as a conflict of interest. You know, usually when we say an advisor has a conflict of interest, you think about the simple, like they have a financial interest yeah. in getting you to do something. But, you know, um, trying to maintain a good relationship or trying not to be blamed, right, trying not to be held accountable for a bad thing, is that, those are goals that are not always compatible with giving the best advice. Right. right? So, so sometimes it's better to be careful than, than, to, be, than to give the best advice you can. So, so almost an anonymous advice might be better, one that's not bound by the relationship, you think? In a way, sure. Uh, you know, I, I, it's kind of jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah. But if we think about um, what you could do to get better advice, right? Right. Um, you know, one thing right off is I think you want to you take a lot of these accountable, accountability pressures off of the advisor, right? You don't want them to feel t- too pressured or too accountable, because then they're not going to want to tell you unfiltered advice, right? They're going to be worried about them giving you advice and it going wrong. Hmm. 
Yeah. So, so a lot of, you know, you, you, you might solicit advice and say, well, you know, obviously I, I know this is, you know, I'm going to make my own decision, but I, I just want to know what you think. You sort of take the accountability pressure off of people rather than put it on. Yeah, and I guess as an advisor, you could do the same thing by giving the options. Here are the choices, ramifications for each, but you make the choice. Yeah, exactly. That's that's actually um, – but but if I if I'm going to seek out an advisor, one of the things you're saying I should do is try to put the accountability pressure on me, not on them. But I, I guess that's kind of is that not a psychological uh, factor that I, I'd rather someone else be the fall guy? So I, I might norm I might more normally put the pressure on my advisors that they're going to they're going to take the hit, not me. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, that That's a good way of framing it. And I, I guess, you know, I, I can't tell you what you should value more, right? If you really put a value on, well, if it goes wrong, it's not my fault. You know? Right. I can I can blame the advisor. Well, then sure, go ahead and do that, right? But yeah. if, if you just want unfiltered, you know, best advice, good information, and then probably you want to take the accountability pressures off. Well, that's good. Uh, let's let's do this, Jason. Let's take a break. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Jason Dana, Assistant Professor of Management and Marketing at uh, Yale School of Management. We're going to take a break, come back, continue uh, learning some more things we can do that, that might improve, uh, you know, as we're working with an advisor, what can we do to help make sure that the advice we're getting is the best advice, the healthiest advice, good advice, um, one thing we've learned so far, take accountability pressures off the off of the table. Try to try to own your own accountability instead of pushing it onto your advisor. Um, interesting stuff, isn't it? We'll take a break. More on uh, making and, and receiving better advice and getting better advice from those around us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting discussion uh, underway here with Dr. Jason Dana, Assistant Professor of Management and Marketing at the Yale School of Management. He's He put together some great research with uh, Dalian Kane, um, and they're talking about why good advice is often bad advice and the difficulty that, uh, that just some of our psychological factors, some of our beliefs, our issues um, they, they come up in just the simple advising that we do, even as a professional advisor. One of the examples that we gave early on was the fact that um, some OBGYNs would recommend um, maybe an annual mammogram. And yet in their own profession, their own life, they actually get mammograms less often than that. So they they tend to give advice that they themselves don't even live and keep. And so uh, that's some of the interesting research that's come out of this. Um, we appreciate, again, Dr. Jason Dana joining us. Thanks for being back with us. Yeah, thank you. You bet. Talk about um, – because one of the things you gave us before the break was some advice about if we can take the accountability pressure off of the advisor, um, then it might free them up to, to be, I guess, a little bit more real or honest in the, in the advice that they're giving. Is that the idea generally? Yes, exactly. 
Exactly. So that, that's, that's one part of the story. Now, there's another part of the story, you know, when it comes to giving and getting good advice that we didn't talk about. And I guess that's just these, uh, like a basic psychological tendency. You can almost call this a cognitive factor to think differently about risks for other people than you think about them for yourself. Hmm. So uh, I'll explain a little. Uh, my old colleagues at UPenn, Paul Rosen and Ed Roisman, researched something they call simhedonia. And this is a word they made up for the positive emotion you feel at others' good fortune. And I guess what they find across a number of studies is that your sympathy for other people's losses is a much stronger emotion than your pleasure that you feel at other people's gains. And so if you, if you have children, think of it this way, right? Like maybe they want to do something that's fun but a little dangerous. Like, yeah. hey, I want to balance up here. And then you say, uh, you know, maybe balance a little lower down there, right? Wouldn't that be... And, and you may be, you know, acutely aware that you're, you're really feeling their pain and you're very worried about their losses and not so much acutely experiencing, you know, how fun it will be. And oh, wow. The difference in the fun. Yeah. Right? And, and so this is just something we do when we think about other people's risks. We, we can't quite uh, sympathize with their happiness at gains so strongly as we do sympathize with their pain from losing. And, wow. and, and, you know, and this is so uncommon to our experience, they had to invent a word for it. Yeah, exactly. Hedonia. We don't have a word. <laughs> so when, when you think about other people, you naturally tend to worry about their possible losses more so than you anticipate joy at their gains. And that leads you again to be biased towards advising caution. Interesting. And, and actually and minimizing good feelings, like the joy of something. I see it in my own work with couples that are struggling in their marriages, um, I, I always, I, I do, I, I want to protect more their pain that they're feeling in the relationship than celebrate the joys that they're having in even a dysfunctional relationship. It's interesting. Wow. Does it, and that's, you're saying just a cognitive kind of factor that each of us, that's just, it's how we kind of value the data. We tend to value the negative data uh, more aggressively and want to fix the negative maybe more than embracing the positive. Yeah, I just don't think we're capable of feeling the sympathetic happiness as much as we are feeling the sympathetic pain. Right? I mean, so you true. see someone get hurt like on, on TV or on, you, you know, sometimes you can actually feel it. Right? Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And, and rarely you get that, that experience with happiness too, but it's just not as, as potent. Right? Uh-huh. And then we give advice very quickly, like, why are they even doing the show? They look so stupid. But you don't, like, you don't see that person. I, I always see it on American Idol, where <laughs> you see that person just embarrassing themselves, and you're thinking, oh, why are you yeah. doing this? But you, I guess yeah, the other— literally has to turn off the volume or uh-huh. the channel sometimes when someone's doing something painful. Exactly. She can't even look. But, but instead, we should maybe also try to see that this is, the, this is their 15 minutes. They're— and they're loving it, I guess, up to the point that they get rejected. This is a high. There's something exciting for them. Yeah. Right, right. And, and so when we're advising, as an advisor, we probably ought to make sure we're, we're, I guess, trying to make sure we're cognitively focusing also on what is their real benefit that they're, that they're seeking. Yeah, although, again, I think that's a very, very difficult thing to accomplish. But yeah. But if you think about this, like another way that you could give and get good advice, other than the accountability pressures we talked about earlier, you know, if I were asking for advice, maybe I should, instead of saying, what should I do, 
I might ask, what would you do? Oh, yeah. Because then you're not thinking about the risks vicariously anymore. You're thinking about them personally. You're thinking about you, right? And I can combine that with the accountability. I'm like, I understand this isn't, you know, what you'd tell me to do, and I'm going to make my own decision. But what would you do? With my given set of circumstances, what would you do? Is that what you mean? Well, I I, I might just ask, what would you do? You know, this is interesting. Um, And why people don't use this kind of thinking when they give advice, but but think about the word majority, right? Uh-huh. By definition, a majority of us are in the majority a majority of the time. Right? <laughs> so, so as a first pass, it's not bad reasoning when you want to think about someone else or what someone else should do to think about yourself and just project that onto someone else. Now, I mean, maybe you have like really good reason to believe in a certain situation that you're quite unusual. <laughs> right, which, which we do think, right? Yeah, but we, 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 we think it too often. Yeah. Old advisor Robin Dawes did a lot of research on this, and, and people who don't project in this way, people who predict that others are different than them, tend to be less socially accurate. Hmm. Right? Because most of the time you're not so different than other people. So so as a first pass, I know it's a rough cut, but you know you you might think about yourself and project that when giving advice, and that can help you get over some of these biases of only focusing on the negative and not the positive. Yeah, that's and, and fantastic. Turn, I might ask you, what would you do instead of what should I do? Yeah, and I mean, because like and you've even done it here on the show, uh, a lot of times thinking about these in very specific situations gives maybe a different answer of advice than if it's a very general concept. Hmm, interesting, yeah. Like, like, like even just like being specific and then ask, what would you do? What would you do in this situation? It's so specific that you might get, you know, something a little more accurate. Hmm. Yeah, at least you're getting something unfiltered. So yeah. you're getting an independent piece of information. And, and presumably that's what you want when you're asking for advice. Someone's had a personal experience you haven't had or they have some expertise that you don't have. So, you know, it, you want to get that information from them, and you want to get it without all these filters, right? Right. Without, without cognitive biases and without uh, concerns for, for being cautious not to be blamed and that sort of thing, and that's the best way to get information. Uh, one other thing that you do mention in your article is th- that there are several types of advisors. Um, and so I guess when we're approaching somebody that's going to give us advice, whether it's financial or medical advice, is there some background, is there some researching I should do about them and their position? Does, should it matter to me um, their credentials or, their, or how they go about making their decisions? Is there, are there some people that have a better style that might fit me better? Oh, that, that's interesting. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how you'd know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, uh, trying to think about this carefully. Um, you, you know, one one thing I guess I would say that 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 relates to that uh, is just not to fall uh, too in love with this idea of really liking your advisor, really feeling compatible, and really placing too much trust in them. So, so one really interesting study by Schwartz, Luce, and Ariely they they studied people, uh, they they tracked people's dental decisions, and people that had been with their dentist the longest actually made more costly and worse 
medical choices, treatment choices. And the reason being is they don't want to get a second opinion because they they feel like, well, that means I don't trust you or, you know, I'm going to hurt the relationship. So I I don't want to seek a second piece of advice. Interesting. Yeah, no, I've seen that. People, you become so close to them that they feel, you know, if they went to another therapist, if they went to another dentist, that they're like hurting their friendship. Right. And and so then you're bound, right? Yeah. And bound maybe to get bad or more costly dental advice. Uh, Interesting. So that that is I guess why two opinions might be better than one. Right. right. I mean this is this is one case where you kind of want to reverse everything we've been talking about. You know, if you were considering whether you should get a second opinion, I might then think, what would you tell someone else, right? Mm. That that might be a time to take the outside view. Well, if it was me, would you tell me to get a second opinion? Such <laughs> a great you question. Too, right? I mean, a lot of this is, I guess, understanding that there's more going on. There's a psychological side to this, a cognitive side. There's just behavioral theories and histories going on with all of this. There's habits. There's relationships. All of this is compounding in the advice and the advisor or the advice recipient and the advisor role. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and a, a less psychologically informed view, you know, would say that if someone's giving you biased advice, right, then they just don't have your best interest right. at heart, right? Like maybe they have a financial conflict of interest. So it's kind of like if you don't trust someone's advice or something, it's almost like you're inferring that they're, they're not ethical or they're not good. Mm-hmm. And what we're talking about is is – how even good people could give bad advice, right? Yeah. We're talking about how someone who's well-intentioned, who does care about you, could still end up giving bad advice. And when you think of it that way, right, it, then seeking a second opinion or wondering whether advice is good is not the same thing as saying, well, that person's, you know, doesn't care or is not trying to give me good advice, right? This is an understanding that we're all prone to doing this. Yeah. And, and that that's that's really important too, just in advising your own children. I mean, you know what I mean? Because a lot of our advice for our children is very biased too. And we love them, and we want what's best for them, but it's also sometimes out of fear. You know, we don't yeah. want them to feel pain. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the that's the perfect example of of caring for. I mean, you know, there's not someone for whom you will feel more agency, for whom you will ever try to make the best decisions and give the best advice. But even with children, right, these biases come into play. Yeah. Oh, this is good stuff. Man, where have you been all my life, Jason? This is great. And this we got to get this information out there because it really is. It's not. We're not saying people are mean and they're trying to mislead you. I mean, there are a few of those, but the majority are just good people that don't know what they don't know. Exactly. And this is this is a, an approach that I bring into ethics and other people that are doing what we call behavioral ethics do now. Mm. You know, traditionally, you would you would try to uh, sort out what's right from wrong and teach people what's good and what's bad. And these days, we're looking more at what you call ordinary unethical behavior, why even good people can sometimes do bad things, yeah. basically why we all fail to live up sometimes to our own moral standards. Oh. That's huge. And, and again, that's everybody, right? I mean, that's everybody. Everybody. Right? So, Not the extremes anymore. It's just the common folk now. Right. When we talk about these extreme examples, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's not relevant to me. But I think it's relevant. I think everyone real, recognizes that sometimes we're, we're not as good as we want to be. Yeah. 
we're not as good as we would ideally be. So that's kind of more relevant in all of our lives, understanding the psychology behind why we fail to do what we want to do. Mm. You know, I got to have you back, Jason, because I want to talk more about the ordinary unethical behavior. I'm sure you've got a whole class on that. So um, we'll have to get you back when you're free again down the road. Sure, anytime. This was a lot of fun. Fun for us, too. Jason Dana, Dr. Jason Dana from uh, Yale School of Management. Appreciate you so much. Um, wow, that's cool stuff. Again, and, and we're everyone's giving advice all the time, and yet we don't see our own bias. We don't see our own um, fears, our relationship issues that come into play on all of that. Anyway, we'll be posting uh, some more information about Jason Dana on our Twitter page. Go uh, check that out, at Dr. Matt Show. We'll take a break, come back, do a quick little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Fascinating work uh, by Dr. Jason Dana out of Yale. Isn't that, uh, it's just so interesting that we we are constantly um, trying to influence people. And, and we're doing it from a good position. You know, most of us aren't manipulative hacks that are just trying to get as much money as we can out of people. I mean, there are those. Don't get me wrong. But... <laughs> Ben just raised his hand. Um, but in the end, we we want what's best for other people, and yet we, we need to know ourselves, right? We need to know what our tendencies are, what our, our fears are. The very simple fact um, – I have, I have a really interesting principle that I teach a lot in my classes, and the principle is very simply we tend to live down and we tend to learn up. Which basically means most of us live less than we know we should be living, right, morally. We know we should be doing better. We know that uh, we've, we've got a higher standard, and yet we tend to live our life down. Um, and that's one of the things that we were just learning by Jason Dana. So when we advise people, we don't tend to advise people based on our living track. We tend to b- advise them based on our learning track. <laughs> Um, so the advice might be coming as a, a really you know well thought out analytical principle that is idyllic, but not necessarily something we live. There is power, however, in advising people from where we live, which um, which could be try to pick our game up, right? So we're living a better, healthier life, and and also because we might have some really powerful answers in how to live some of these higher principles of life we're trying to live. If I want to be better in my relationship, um, some of my best advice won't come in the theory of wanting to be a better partner, but more in the practice of how I tried to do it today. And um, so think about that. As you're giving your advice to your kids, a lot of times we're like, well, I just don't want you to turn out like me, so do this. Um it might be better to try to advise them where you are. And if you wished you had done something different, then advise on the principle. If you wished you had gone to get a degree, but you didn't go to college and get a college degree, then you can say, you know what? I've always regretted I didn't get a degree, 
But what I do know has worked for me, you know, building my own company in landscaping or whatever, is hard work and creativity and a willingness to change. But go teach those principles instead of just the idyllic, you know, the ideal, um, if that makes sense. We tend to live down and we learn up, but there's an incredible power when I can see your life living what you are saying. And I'm much more willing to probably buy that argument than theory. Um, But like our good doctor uh, Jason Dana was saying earlier, most of us don't notice that we are that incongruent, that we're that out of sorts. We don't notice that we're advising and giving a lot of advice based on things we are not even living. You might feel it here and there, but uh, you want more power in your relating with others and your advising of others, you might want to connect your power to what you're living. Um, Boy, that's good advice, Matt. But super hard, isn't it? Super hard. Um, We're going to take a break. It's hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. We couldn't do it without you folks. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you uh, find the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Great show for you. Today we'll be talking about um, what to do, you know, to turn your bad day around. I I got one way. What's that? Ben turned my bad day totally around. What did he do? I wasn't even having a bad day. But he walked into my office. But now you're having a better day. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, for sure. He walked into my office about 6.40 with some um, ice cream. Nice. Homemade ice cream. What what flavor? Um, the flavor would be, I guess we would call it a candy cane. What, peppermint? What do we call that? Yeah, peppermint. Peppermint crunch. Mm. You can see it's in vanilla with vanilla bean. Okay. Either that or he was smoking a cigarette while he was making it. So it's it. kind of a... Because there's a... There's a little bean. Yeah, I'm not completely sure where those black specks came in, but okay, that, you might want to turn your seeing, heater off. <laughs> seeing as you created the ice cream, it's really you good ice. Probably cream. know what's in it. You didn't bring you didn't bring tea dog any. No, it's fine. Well, I, I intended you guys to share it. I'm not really a big fan of peppermint. You give anything. me one spoon. <laughs> it was one spoon, but he attended on sharing. Okay. Yeah, I'm not, not big on peppermint, so I didn't get the message. I didn't get that good. message. That's fine. To go ahead. It. It's all yours. I mean, there's a little left if no, you want to just no harm, no scrape foul. the bowl. Scrape the bowl. Um, I was wondering what that was. It's it. You walk in with a cup. I'm like, what's his that? His delivery mechanism. He needs to work on his um, presentation. Yeah, he grabbed just a like a cup out of the mug. Uh, a coffee mug, mug. Coffee mug out of his cabinet. And, and one of his in. spoons. Yeah, I, guess I, I ran out of pint containers, and so that was the mm. closest thing I had. I, right. I noticed, too, I didn't really get a pint. I mean, I kind of got... Well, see, I, I, nubbins, made, the I made this ice cream for somebody else, and then there was a little bit extra, so I oh. put it in. What, what's her name? Um, Jenny. Mm, she sounds wow. cute. <laughs> Jenny? You dating her? 
Is this a no, you get making a an announcement? I, I just I just promised her ice cream. Ooh. Oh, fastest wow. way to a woman's heart. Mm-hmm. Ice yeah. cream. Is it? No, I'm just making. Yeah, stuff it, up it hasn't worked for me. Okay, <laughs> I'm like my wife. What if they're lactose intolerant? <laughs> oh well, then you know, find something. <laughs> then else. it's the it's not such a fast way to their heart. Um. Anyway, hey, uh, so we'll be talking about how to turn your bad day around. One way to do it, obviously, is with a little. Ice cream. Can I tell you what I've been doing? What? You're having these interviews and discussing topics with, with important people. Yeah. I'm in the other room watching a live stream of the National Wildlife Refuge up in Oregon where the militia standoff continues. Okay. That's very compelling stuff. Yeah, yeah. And how's that going? Um. Well, at last report, uh, someone uh, said uh, on a radio, you hear someone going, was that, was that gunfire? Did someone hear gunfire? And then the people on camera like scramble, grab weapons and start taking up defensive positions. Oh, no. and. Then a couple minutes later, the live stream went dark. So either they just took a break. Wow. Or something went down. Well, let's hope they took a break. I hope they took a break. Maybe somebody just accidentally kicked the they, cord. They could have unplugged it. Who knows? But, you know, they said they're going to be back up at about 20 minutes or so. So we'll, I'll keep mm. you updated. Holy cow. But while I was after that and I was kind of overcome with the emotion of not having a live stream to watch, I found a video from the Mike Huckabee campaign where they made a parody of Adele's Hello. Oh, I love Adele and so Mike Huckabee. This is the chorus, if you'll hit that there, Ben. Hello from the caucus night. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. No, no, no. You know, is that like his daughter? I don't know who this is. She's probably the campaign manager. It's not very good because they try to put Bernie and Hillary, and there's too many syllables. Yeah, those are hard. And so to they say. sort of stretch it out, and it just sounds horrible. Okay, we got to keep playing that from now on. That'll be the theme until the caucus night. <laughs> the, we'll play the Mike Huckabee campaign manager's version of hello from adele apparently and there's all these videos of whenever it says hello huckabee's on his iphone listening hello 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 (laughs) and then at some point he tosses the phone and someone catches the phone oh my heavens and then they mention like all these different counties in iowa because apparently they work with the song (laughs) it's really odd it is it's a whole different world isn't it they'll do anything nowadays i guess you can do anything it, I mean, we used to have standards. Yes. But now it's whatever that gets you noticed. Whatever fits. <sighs> That's kind of sad. I'll, I'll put that out on uh, on the show Twitter account so you can uh, yeah. absorb no, it's really good. the That's, musical yeah. renditions of someone associated it. with a campaign close to. I don't know if it's the actual Huckabee campaign. It might be a pack. I, it, it's, it, sounded, it sounded like the real deal. Did it really? Totally it sounded like campaign, did. not packishness. Yeah. Package Not a lot list? of package there. Not a lot of packing around that one. Hey, um, there's a story here that reminded me of Ben's um, of Ben's ice cream. Okay. Did you hear about the Waffle House worker that got fired? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're putting in a Waffle House near my house. Are they really? Yeah, because of the story, my wife may never go to a Waffle House we, again. We don't have Waffle Houses 
much in the no. West, especially in Utah, there weren't any. So I don't know if it's a, a Waffle House or a house of waffles, but it's well, going in your mouth. Yeah, you're going to want the Waffle House. Yes. Um, Waffle House said it fired workers caught on camera using a kitchen pot to wet their hair in an Arkansas location. Antonio Robinson said he was dining with a friend Friday at the Waffle House in Forest City when his friend found hair in his food. It gets worse. He was just coughing, cough, cough, making noise like that, Robinson said. I looked up at him, Robinson said. He went to pulling out strings of hair out of his mouth. (coughs) Are you okay, buddy? I got hair in my mouth. So bad. That is horrible. But it's waffles, it's syrup, it's... Robinson said he and his friends witnessed women dipping their hair in a pot of water in the kitchen. The restaurant's chain corporate office in Atlanta issued a statement. We immediately reached out to the local management team. After identifying the parties involved, they were immediately terminated. We do not tolerate hair dipping in the water pots in in the kitchen. It's pretty bad. Bah! I did find a hair in my ice cream. Mm. It was a long blonde hair. That's I'm, a lie. I'm going to bet it's Jenny's hair. That's a lie. Because you don't have long blonde hair. Back in my previous days, I did. No, I didn't find a... He was a surfer. I didn't find a hair. I found a porcupine quill. Oh, that's interesting. That's weird. Yeah. That might just be there for aesthetic appeal. <laughs> yeah. Or acupuncture, whichever. Hey, um... I, I broke the, I broke my button. The volume knob at your uh, microphone station is now broken. Don't tell Don or Lynn, or the Lynn. engineer. I just need a. Don't really, break his baby. I just need a little Allen wrench. Sure, that's yeah, all I need. A little tool of some sort. So if Lynn's listening, bring me an Allen wrench. Can um, you control your volume at all? No, no. Are you just full blast? No, it's good. I okay. I, I don't like to listen to my volume. <laughs> Um, What's going on in the headlines around the rest of the country? As we've been talking about, Fox News and Donald Trump are conflicted again. Donald Trump will not appear as of right now in Thursday night's debate on Fox television. Fox uh, put out a press release basically saying that this is about one thing. It's about Megyn Kelly, whom he has viciously attacked since August. His, uh, the statement went on to say Trump's campaign manager threatened Kelly, noting that she had a rough couple of days after the last debate, and he would hate to have her go through that again. Fox continued that uh, continued that Trump is still welcome at the debate and would be treated fairly, but the network re- refuses to give in to terroristations. Wow, is that terroristations towards any of our employees? Megan Kelly was praised by filmmaker Michael Moore last night uh. on Fox News. To get elected president in this country, you have to come on this network. You have to play with ball with this network. Donald Trump today said, I'm not playing ball with this network. That's a historic moment. And it's going to be interesting to see, you know, where the real power is. Trump thinks he doesn't need Fox News. I think, far, I think Fox News probably has something else to say about that. And it'll be interesting to see where do the powers that be go with this. He's <laughs> Michael Moore is loving Michael Moore. But you do not want Michael Moore telling you you're great in the end you just no not not, not if you're on that network but he's he's stirring the pot too oh he's like hey you got it now we're gonna see what fox news is gonna do right (laughs) he finds this to be fun this is cool Uh, in defiance of the democratic national committee nbc news and the new hampshire union leader are reportedly set to announce their plans to host an unsanctioned debate on february 4th 
according to two anonymous sources who spoke with BuzzFeed News. Notably, unlike the DNC's debates, NBC will hold theirs on a weeknight, hmm. not buried on a weekend yeah. during the NFL playoffs That's where right. no one's going to watch it. The unsanctioned bait would also give candidates a last chance to get a word in before the crucial February 9th New Hampshire uh, primaries. Clinton said she is open to attending the unsanctioned debate. O'Malley says he is in. Bernie Sanders says he's not. Mm. Unless it's sanctioned. Now, a Clinton representative said if all three agree to it, then the DNC will sanction it. Wow. So we're in this sort of situation where if Sanders doesn't get in, it won't get sanctioned. But if the DNC won't sanction it because Sanders doesn't want to get in. So I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. But they're doing that because the DNC took away all the debates from NBC. Right. Because they did not like. Or was that the Republican Party? Uh, it I was think the Republican it was Republicans, Party. Republicans, right? yeah. So they're just doing this to get another debate because they lost their other one. They lost the Republican debate. So they're trying to get another Democratic opportunity. Well, I'm going to bet some won't want that. Possibly not. Let's quit talking to each other. Let's just go run this race. Like I said, Clinton and O'Malley are in. Bernie Sanders, not so much. Hmm. Uh, speaking of Bernie, he is going to be meeting with President Obama today. Why? Uh, it doesn't say. They they talked about this several months. In December, they talked about it at a congressional holiday ball. The White House said they're, the two will meet privately in the Oval Office. There will be no formal agenda. Is there going to be – is President Obama like trying to fill out which one's the best – I don't know. Support? He talked about uh, Hillary Clinton last week saying yeah. – and it really sounded like yeah, she's the best, Hillary, yeah. the best option. So we'll see what happens there. Six Cleveland police officers involved in a fatal 2012 car chase in which 137 shots were fired at an unarmed black couple were, and, and were killed. They were fired on Tuesday. So six Cleveland cops fired over this incident. Another six officers were disciplined for their actions and a 13th officer set to retire. One of the officers, Michael Borello, was acquitted of voluntary manslaughter in May for the death of Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams. Additionally, five police supervisors, all white, have been charged with misdemeanors for failing to stop the chase. The video of this, part of it, has been shown, and they just turned this car into Swiss cheese. And it took six, how many years? Uh, 2012 to now. So four years before, yeah, we're not, we're going to terminate these. And no gun. There was nothing in the car. There was two people that didn't stop. Wow. And they should have called off the chase and just used their radios to keep track of them and then yeah. arrest them. But instead, they, they killed them that way. Um, in other news, this came out yesterday. I found this interesting. A lack of name recognition can be a struggle for a presidential candidate. But for some, a lack of face recognition is also a problem. A new uh, Vox Morning Consult poll reveals that through uh, some 2016 candidates like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are almost universally recognized. Others like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio are unfamiliar faces to many voters, including some of their, of their own supporters. According to the results, Clinton and Trump are more recognizable than George Clooney. Wow. While more people can identify Tom Brady than can identify Marco Rubio. See, it, it says 76% of Marco Rubio supporters can identify their candidates. So there's like oh, see, this is 25% gonna, that can. Kid, the problem is this is going to start to push Kanye West into politics. It will. Yesterday, Jimmy Kimmel yeah. on his show on ABC they had someone run around the streets with Martin O'Malley's picture. And all the woman said was, hey, excuse me, who's this? And they're like, I don't know. And she just went through all these people. Now they're selectively yeah. editing, yeah, but yeah. there's so many people were like, one, no guy looked, one guy looked at it and went, Gary Coleman. I'm like, no, it's not Gary Coleman. <laughs> not even close. And they're just going down. And finally, some, one woman goes, O'Malley. And she goes, right. Then he asked the woman next to her, who's this? I don't know. Oh, you wow. just heard her say who that was. Listen. Just listen next time. 
Wow, it's hard. No, no wonder Trump's doing so well. If you know, if you're on television, then all of a sudden, boom, everyone knows your face and your name. Hey, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, Amy Gallo will be joining us. She's the author of the HBR or Harvard Business Review's Guide to Managing Conflict at Work. Today, she's going to be walking us through some steps to help us improve our mood and turn a bad day around. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Amy Amy Gallo up next. Cause you had a bad day, you take it one down, you sing a sad song just to turn it around. You say you don't know, you tell me Welcome back, know. friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, no one ever said life is easy, but some days can seem extra difficult. Maybe you got into an argument with your teenager, or maybe traffic was awful on the way to work. Even small things can snowball, and before you know it, you're in a bad mood. So what do you do to turn your mood around, and how can you prevent another bad day in the future? Amy Gallo is joining us. She's a contributing writer for the Harvard Business Review, and she's got some answers for us. Miss Gallo, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. You've never had a bad day, have you, Amy? Oh, never. Not, not today. <laughs> not sure. today, at least. Uh, <laughs> talk to me. Uh, so what is there something that triggers the bad day? Is it, is it just, what is it? What, what constitutes the bad day? Well, that really depends on the person. Yeah. Um, and in large part, I mean, you can even, it, it varies with yourself, um, with an individual person. So one day you might spill coffee on yourself and laugh, and another day it might make you cry or scream at someone. Yeah. Um, so it's really, oftentimes people say, you know, I've had a bad day, like you said, I got stuck in traffic, or I got in a fight with my teenager. Um, and it's really usually about the bigger picture. Something bigger is going on for you, whether... Um, you have a lot of stress at work or you're under a lot of pressure at home or, you know, something's going on in a, in a relationship of yours. So it's usually not that small thing that happens, right. but it's that thing that sets you off. The um, trigger. Exactly, the trigger that makes you just feel awful. So we, I guess one thing we could do to immediately start to fix it is know what our triggers are. Yes, for sure. So anytime you start to feel cranky, you catch yourself snapping at someone, you know, you just start to feel bad. It's important to think, what's really going on here? You yeah. know, is it really about the coffee? Is it really about my dog, you know, not cooperating today? Whatever it is, um, you know, really think through what is actually setting me off. And it may be that um, you have a colleague you work with who's particularly difficult for you. You don't like the way she communicates or, um, you know, she often makes you feel bad about the work you do. Um, it might be you know, a certain route you take into work and you see something negative. It could be even bad news you hear on the radio. There's some interesting studies that show that if you consume negative uh, news in the morning, you're much more likely to have a bad day. Oh, man. See, my problem, my trigger is waking up. Anytime I'm awake, (laughs) it just is a trigger for me. When I'm asleep, I don't have any of these problems, Amy. Well, I, you know, it's funny you say that because I do think one of the things I do, I have to remind myself and I remind my eight-year-old daughter to do this is that when you get up and you think, oh, I just want to go back to sleep, you're already putting yourself in a bad situation, yeah. right? So you have to, and this is one of the things you do anytime you experience a bad day, whether it happens first thing in the morning, middle of the day, in the evening, is think about 
something positive. Mm. Um, that's the first thing you want to do is it, the minute you start sort of get doing that negative thinking is you think, okay, what one thing am I looking forward today? Um, what three things are going well in my life right now? Because uh, that will help short circuit. There's studies, neuroimaging studies that show you can't be grateful and depressed at the same time. Huh. It's, just, it's just not possible. So if you're, if you're actually in, I guess, so that's the cognitive part of it. You got to get in your head even if you have to kind of force yourself, start looking for something to be grateful for. In fact, in your article, you say studies show that when you're positive, you're 31% more productive, uh, you're 40% more likely to receive a promotion, you have 23% fewer health-related effects of stress, and your creativity rates triple. Yeah, that's the, that's from research by Sean Aker, who wrote The Happiness Advantage. And he, he's got some really interesting stuff that shows that positivity affects all of those things, right? Your productivity, creativity, your health, and your career. You know, people are more likely to promote you. People are more likely to want to work with you. Um, And I think one of the other important things is that not only does it affect you, but it affects those around you. Oh, yeah. um, emotions are incredibly contagious. And you, if, you, know, you probably see this. Your wife is in a bad mood. Your kid is in a bad mood. Your coworker is in a bad mood. Before you know it, you are too. <laughs> sure. um, so this is especially important to know how to turn about, around a bad day if you are a manager because people are watching you um, and people are going to catch what you're feeling and displaying. So it's incredibly important not to be wallowing um, or to be particularly negative. That is, I mean, I guess that's the key too, is you might even have certain people on your team. So if I'm a business manager, I might have a team member that just brings the funk. Yeah, the Debbie Downer. The Debbie Downer. And, yeah. Or Don. Or no, no yeah. Don's my boss. I can't say that. Or uh uh, Devin Downer. Um, right. But all of a sudden, boy, when they walk in, you just feel like Lord Vader has, you know, hit the flight deck. It's yeah, scary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and you feel it. You definitely, yeah. it, you can, it does feel like they literally have something that's jumping off them and getting on you. Yeah. <laughs> and right. You're, you're like, I'm being infected. Um, and I, I think the best way to counteract those things is to be positive yourself and to model, especially if you're a manager, to model. Um, positivity. And when things um, go wrong, when, when you're under particularly stressful or you're on a particularly stressful project or you've got a tight deadline, is to remind people what positive things are going to result from the hard work you're putting in mm. or to be grateful. You know, turn to someone and say thank you for, for all the extra effort you're putting in. Um, that will really help to change the mood even if you've got uh, that negative person on your team. It's it's really interesting um, how one person even all of a sudden hitting some fun music in the office and throwing a ball around for two minutes could change the game. Yeah. Like yeah. it's – I mean I guess it could also irritate people. But <laughs> I just – I look at it like there's power, isn't there? There's power in in recognizing the mood, yours and everyone's around you. I mean like it's funny to me. You're bringing up positivity and being happy, which seems so trite. And your Harvard Business Review, except the research is profound and it backs it. And yeah. it's not – this isn't just, you know, pretend. This is like be real. Go yeah. recognize what's going on and change it. Yeah, and that's important. I mean you're not faking it. Right? No. Anyway, if I sit there and say I'm so happy and, <laughs> la, la, la. and, and, and everyone knows that's not true, they know I'm a miserable person, yeah. that's not going to help. No. Right? It has to be genuine. And that's why you want small – you know, you're not going to – Go from a day where you, you know, spilled coffee on yourself, got stuck in traffic, got in a fight with your wife, and 
you know, your boss yelled at you to, to the best day you've right. ever had, right? But you, do, you find small ways in, and that's take really small actions that, that can help change the mood. And again, it's maybe it won't make it a, a you know, you're not going to have a huge smile on your face, but hopefully it just won't bring you down further. Mm. Because not only are emotions contagious to those around us, but we trend on our emotions. So if you start to think negatively, that's the trend that your your brain is going to go in. So it's that's very easy to have sort of that downward spiral. So what you're trying to do is sort of interrupt um, that slide so that you're not falling further, and hopefully you can start to trend upward. Love it. Let's take a break, Amy. We're speaking again with um, Amy Gallo, who is uh, at Harvard Business Review. She's the author of the HBR Harvard Business Review's Guide to Managing Conflict at Work, a how-to guidebook about handling conflict professionally and productively. She's also a contributing editor to Harvard Business Review. Um, which And we're just honored to have her on the show. She's got a great um, article out, How to Turn a Bad Day Around. Stick with us, folks. We'll come back, continue the discussion on the other side of the break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. complicated, folks, but it's beautiful. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about how to turn the bad day around. Who, do, who doesn't need to learn how to do that? By the way, my boss, Don, just walked in because I made a comment about Don the Downer. I meant Devin the Downer because Don's not a downer. Don's an upper. Hey, um, we are talking on the phone with Amy Gallo, and uh, she wrote a wonderful article, How to Turn a Bad Day Around, She uh, that was published on uh, Harvard Business Review's um, site. And uh, she she is the uh, the author of the HBR Guide to Managing Conflict at Work, and uh, which is a how-to guide about handling conflict professionally and productively. Which I'm telling you, that right there is worth all the money in the world if you could learn how to manage your own conflict. Um, today she's teaching us about how to turn the bad day around. So far, we got to pinpoint the problem, turn it positive. The positive, you know, in, in almost every way, positivity is going to pick up our game and, and our health of our lives. She taught us about being more grateful, and uh, she's going to continue the discussion with us. Amy Gallo, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Talk about... Um, the routine. I guess one way you say in your article that we can turn the de- the the bad day around is like really look at your routine. Yeah. Well, and I think that you mentioned something before the break about turning on music and throwing a ball around, and I think that's an important um, thing to. There's two things in there. One is that changing your routine. So if if things are you know, if you're feeling bad, if your team's under a lot of stress, don't just all sit at your desks and hunker down. You really want to. Sit you know, get up, move around, like you said, play some music, listen to a podcast you like, do something that can help you just sort of change things up. Right. Um, and then the other is also just, you know, being with people you enjoy being with, because it's, it's easy when you're in a bad mood, as we talked about, it, you know, you know those moods are, are um, contagious, so you don't want, you think, oh, I shouldn't be around anyone today, I'm just in a bad mood. Yeah. But you know, find someone who you trust and who you, you know, look for your most positive friend and go have a chat with them. Go out to lunch, do something different so that so that you can sort of break, um, break the mood that you're in. Yeah. I mean, I've even just seen 
changing my routine of what I'm eating. Like, mm-hmm. like, because you'll just grab some carb load moment for the breakfast, and then you have the the fog of carb. Um, <laughs> and I wonder, I, I just eating more protein for me in the morning changes a lot. Yeah, I think eating is an important one because you know it obviously affects your physiology, but you also um, you're making a good choice. And that's, that's something you, that helps to short-circuit a bad mood as well. So if you can make a positive choice for yourself, so I'm going to um, eat choose an apple instead of, you know, that sugary muffin. Yeah. Or um, I'm going to have, you know, tea instead of coffee. But ma- making that positive choice signals to your brain, I'm doing something good. And that helps to sort of set you in the right direction, as I was saying earlier, sort of trending upward away from negativity more toward positivity. And that's, I mean, I know my bad days come from a lot around productivity. Mm. So it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I've got nothing done. I've been dealing with emails all day, and I'm just, you know, in a in a rancid mood because I think, I, you know, all those things I wanted to get done today are not getting done. So true. Which is why you also teach, one of your points is take action. So if you're if you're overwhelmed and in the funk, if you don't, you can maybe act your way out of it. Do something. Get a result. Finish a project you were supposed to do. Get something done. That's got to feel good. Yeah, exactly. And that tells your brain that helps your brain record a victory. Right. Yeah. So you're saying, look, I'm not a loser. I'm not. <laughs> all these negative things aren't happening to me. I'm in control of the situation, and I can make. I can win. Yeah. No, I love that idea. You also talk about resetting um, realistic expectations because some of our we're just not we're not very real or attuned to what we can actually get done, and it seems like that might cause problems because we thought we were going to get a lot more done today. Yeah, you should see the list of things I have on my to-do list today. It's probably about four times as long as yeah. it should be. Um, and that is, that is important, is is you need to be realistic um, about what you'll be able to accomplish and also just about how things will go. You you know, we get in this, because we're all under a lot of stress, we're all, most of us are overworking, we've got a lot going on in our lives. We think, you know, if it, if it doesn't go exactly as I planned it, everything's going to go, go wrong. And you know, you can't live that way. You have to be willing to accept that there's going to be bumps in the road. The boss isn't going to like the way you did something. Your coworker's not going to get his part of the project done on time. And then what do you what do you actually do? Um, you know, how do you re- bounce back from that without it letting you put, you know, without it putting you under? Right. I mean, and, and you've, duh, this is going to happen. It happens regularly. Right. So right. It's almost like some of us are shocked by it. Like yeah. that, that guy on that project with me, no way. He didn't get it done again for the 44th time. Right, right. And that's, I mean, I think one of the things I like to do is think about, especially when something's, you know, a high-pressure situation or I'm working with the colleague who never gets things done on time, I think, okay, what are the five possible scenarios for how this should go? Hmm. And, and, you know, here's my ideal scenario, but here are these four other ways that things could go down. And so when it does happen that way, I'm not taken by surprise. No, it's so good. It, that's called learning, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Isn't that weird? It's like, no way, you're, Amy, you're going to learn <laughs> and not recreate this again tomorrow. Yeah, well, that, that yeah. <laughs> it's, but that, that, it's as simple as that. That's why I love what you're talking about here because it's, this isn't, this is your life. Control it. Learn. I mean, yeah. things are going to happen. You'll be surprised. Yeah. Bad days can still be created by just tough life, but 
you can also prevent probably a good majority of them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the one of the pieces of the expectations piece too is to, is to think about um, perspective and that you know what's happening right now might feel really awful, but really in the scheme of things, how how awful is it? And this doesn't mean you need to compare yourself. Um, to other people and think, oh, they have it much worse than I do. But truthfully, that can be a little helpful. Is to think about is to think about how good you have it. Think about all the things you do have. So yeah, your boss is mad at you, but are you healthy? Are your kids healthy? Do you have a home? Like, what are, what good things do you have going in your life? Mm. And kind of, yeah, just line it up. Overwhelm yourself with the good. Exactly. Exactly. Give us. Uh, we've got one more minute or so. Um, what would you say, Amy? If I if I just had to say, okay, what's the one thing? Maybe you've already mentioned it, but what would you say is the one thing that is the big thing? Well, I would say gratitude because I think that's the being grateful for what you have um, and being um, grateful to others. That's we haven't talked about that yet because that is you do want to not only think I've got you know a, a healthy kid and um, a secure home and a great job, but you also want to thank other people for contributing to whatever it is you're working on. The act of Doing something kind for other people trigger, triggers a positive loop in our in ourselves, so that we can get out of that negativity and be more positive. Mm. Amy, I love it, and sound research. Yeah, it's, I mean that's this is um, a lot of stuff by Sean Aker. He's got some great books. If people want to check him out, before happiness and the happiness advantage. Um, Annie McKee, who works with with Dan Goleman on emotional intelligence, oh, yeah. they've done tons of research in this area. It's really interesting stuff. If people want to dig further, and and also everybody go to Harvard Business Review, hbr.org, and just look up Amy Gallo, and you'll find a ton of stuff. She's the real deal. Amy, thanks for being with us. Matt, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You bet. Take care of your kid. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Uh, Good stuff. Man, I love professionals (laughs) that just know what they're doing. Right right when I said that, I looked at Ben, by the way. It was a really awkward moment for both of us. I love professionals. (laughs) He's like, are you talking about me? Yes, I am, Ben. Um, good stuff. Amy Gallo, uh, go check, her, check out her work at Harvard Business Review. We'll take a break, come back to a couple of other professionals, our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation, folks. Sit with us. We'll be right back. Because it's good. Love to eat the turkey like a good boy should. Because it's turkey to eat. So good. <laughs> a turkey for me, turkey for you. Let's eat turkey in a big brown shoe. Love to eat the turkey at the table. I once saw a movie with Betty Grable. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, a little turkey song by Adam Sandler. Nobody does a turkey song better than Adam Sandler. We're going to throw the show down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Turkey for me, turkey for you. <laughs> Don't you love the turkey song? It's pretty random. I do in November, yeah. I, I love me some Adam Sandler. You guys don't know why I'm doing the turkey song, do you? Are you wondering? I'm guessing it's National Turkey Day. No. <laughs> Are you kidding? No, it's, 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 national, it's National Chocolate Cake Day. 
Oh, because that makes perfect sense to play the turkey song during National Chocolate no, Day? No, no. Here's why I'm doing the turkey song. Because a turkey has drawn national attention on the internet because a passenger boarding an airplane needed to use the turkey because he and he brought a turkey on board, a live turkey, because that's his emotional support animal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so the guy that's his Patronus is a turkey as well. <laughs> you know it you so I this is what I need to know from you guys. What is your emotional comfort animal? What would you, what's the animal that you can't get on the plane without? My emotional comfort animal. They they let him on the plane with uh, the turkey. Uh, gummy worm. Really? That's not oh, even a real animal. Let's see. Don't tell that to the gummy worms. Good point. Gummy worms matter too. They're this, oh, I love gummy worms. I love to suck on them. I love to chew them. Mm. Hey, um, have you got one, Spence? I'm trying to think. Just think of it this way. Emotional support. What animal do you want to reach over when the plane's going down and just cuddle with? Probably a puppy. Oh, cute. You're going to kill a puppy in a plane crash? No, he'll survive. Look how he set you up for that. He manipulated you into that. <laughs> do, you know what my, do you know what my emotional comfort animal is? I'm just going to give you a little sound um, cue. Here we go. Porcupine. <laughs> what is a donkey? that? Donkey? That's it. Donkey. I love me a donkey. Why? Why is that your emotional support? Have you ever had? Have you ever just held a donkey? Nope. Have you ever just cuddled with a donkey? Nope. Okay, then you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> That's exactly right. No, I just, I, I just someday want to see if I can get a donkey on a Delta airline plane. Wouldn't that be fun? You could probably get it on Allegiant. You, <laughs> you traveled Allegiant. Oh yeah, out of Provo, man. Would you rather? Would you rather walk on and and uh, sit next to a baby crying or a donkey in the middle seat? Oh, that's a good question. I know. Uh, probably a baby donkey. Oh, cute. Have you ever buckled a donkey into an airplane seat? <laughs> if we haven't been by a donkey on an airplane seat, <laughs> good chance we haven't buckled one in. Let me just tell you, you need an extension cable. You need one of their extension belts because they're really hard to. <laughs> I. Donkey. So, well done, donkey. I knew you guys would pull some, some uh, sound uh, out of that. Donkey. Hey, hey uh, I just want you guys to think about it. An emotional comfort animal. Just, just think of that down the road. I might go, I might go bigger than a gummy worm and smaller than a donkey. The puppy's a cute idea. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what are you guys? Um, you guys doing your show thing today? Mm-hmm. We are probably. I'm not sure if we can recover after that. <laughs> I always like to bring Donkey! you. I always like to shut it. <laughs> See, that sounds exactly like it. That's the show right there. Well, that is Mike Myers, but it's from Shrek. Yeah, that. But it's all. It's so but, but there's, yeah, you're mixing. Yeah, you're mixing them. Yes. Heed. I like it. Heed. Yeah. Look at the size of the Donkey, that move your head. Do the, he, he just asked for the heat one. Go ahead. Boys, cranium looks like an orange on a toothpick. Get up if you can. Haul on that huge gargantuan cranium about. <laughs> Did we hit payday right there? See, I knew if we went down the donkey vein, we'd find, we'd find oh, some great stuff. Matt, a lot of times I'll say, okay, do 
<laughs> Lou Holtz as Adam Sandler singing this, like a, a mix, too. Yeah, and then yeah. <laughs> Spencer will chuckle, and then he'll go, okay, think about it, and then he'll go. It's funny. Is that where you got the Bane thing, too? You guys like, just... Do, do, do Bill Walton as Bane. <laughs> <laughs> like, just, just mixing. I could smell colors. <laughs> <laughs> you guys. Do you guys ever work? Um, every I haven't worked a day in my life. Day. I love my job so much I haven't worked a day in my <laughs> life. You know what show this is for us, Matt? What? 633. Oh, yeah. And that's a significant number because? Because it's 3 plus 3 equals 633. 6. 633. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I, I, it's you, not. It's you, not. You guys, I think we've done, I, th- I think I'm on like on 933. Mm-mm. Okay, nope. Maybe not. <laughs> Hours. You know what's funny? We don't even count yeah. our shows anymore. 933 hours, yeah, probably. You're probably yeah. up there. That's for sure. Yeah. We we just decided at the beginning it would be fun to count. I think it's great. Because then we could come to a significant number and go, why did we keep count of that again? Yeah. Well, I think it's fantastic. So it's hey, it's fun. Every yeah. time we get to that, we're like, oh, cool. What's fun what, for us? What do we do? Nothing. But you've also yeah. validated the fact that you're here. You, on 633 episodes, we can see your mugs and we can hear your voice. I mean, this is legit. Yeah. Whenever you're the real. show ends, <laughs> I'm going to put that exact number on my Tombstone. resume, participated in as many as uh, you know, twelve hundred seventy-six. It's nice when I'm doing US my uh, my oh. annual like self-employer review here at yeah, BYU. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, I'm like, uh, oh yeah, I've, I've done uh, six hundred thirty-three uh, <laughs> BYU sports stations. And then I'm thinking, how many days have I taken off? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. My wife says what? A lot. Um, I like how you guys go into those voices too. Those are really cool. We've done. Let's see. We've done. Adam any, Sandler turkey. We've any done time Bane. of accounting anything is. You've done donkey. Crazy. We've done Mike Myers Story from Story. Shrek and So I Married an uh, Axe Murderer. Yeah. yeah. What else He'd, do we have? Uh, and then you just did whatever voice that was. The the science. Uh, the voice. scientist from the Simpsons. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> see, this is stuff I don't see you pulling out on your show. That's why we need to do the pre-show so yeah. that you can. Because very rarely do I see you pulling this out there. Early in the show uh, days, I, th- I think that within the first six months of being on television, so the first year, yeah, um, someone wrote us a letter <laughs> and said that they really liked the show and they had an idea for a certain show that we were like, heck no, we're not doing that. Yeah. But but we loved the letter. And handwritten, you know, yeah, that's yeah, what letters yeah. are. It was funny. And, uh, and, and then <laughs> in the middle of this letter was, you know what, the show's probably 50% like good content, 50%, they use the phrase juvenile hijinks. <laughs> Since that day, that has been one of our mantras, that juvenile hijinks would have a place you got it. on the show. He, he thought it would be a detriment. To us, it's a strength. Nope. It's a, what they say in the business, a strength. Strength. A strength. A strength. A strength. <laughs> got me some Bubba Gump strength. <laughs> I heard that yesterday, by the way. Strength. Strength. Um, yeah, see, so I still – I'm glad you guys got my letter, first of all. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm glad you've cleaned up some of the hijinks. No, we haven't. That's the point. I, I think you have, though. It. You have. Because you're more hijinksy on my show than on your show. It's true. <laughs> and I don't know why that is because you just want to sink my show. You bring the hijinks to us. <laughs> I did. I set you up with the donkey. <laughs> you set us up, and then we're going accents. We're going. I love it. I love stuff. it. Oh, I gotta let you guys go. Do your show. What's uh, what's on your show? To, what's on your show today? Listen, we are one week away from BYU football signing day. Ooh. So they are out recruiting. We're going to tell you the needs. Okay. We're going to tell you why signing day matters, and who are the guys that could be the guys that fill the spots of the seniors, and what role those freshmen maybe transfers play. 
Oh, wow. Cool. Steve Clark, new tight ends coach, is going to join us in studio. Blaine Fowler on the road, talk about hoops and football. Yeah, they got three new coaches, right? Yeah. Well, everyone's I mean, technically yeah. new. Yeah, everyone's technically right? really Newer. new. Yeah. Well, that's a good show. I like it. And hopefully you'll throw in just some hijinks. You know that will happen. That's going to happen. That will happen. Yes. Okay, have a great show. Knock them dead. Thank you, sir. Go get waxed. Go get ready. We're ready now. (laughs) They always have to be waxed. Wax them up, boys. Um, Interesting stuff. So now we know their emotional support animals are a puppy and a gummy worm. And mine's a donkey. I mean, I... I don't know how you don't find love and support in a donkey. Um, We got uh, a few more stories I just got to tell you about. One of them, apparently, I don't understand this, but you won't be able to eat popcorn at a cinema ever again if this film fan gets his way. A film fan from Newcastle, England, wants to ban the sale of popcorn in cinemas because he claims the noise of it being eaten is ruining movies. Is that really annoying? Well, that one is. Is this Terry? Yeah, I Man. I got a microphone next to Terry. This is some wet popcorn. Mike Shotton first became frustrated with the rustling and chewing when he watched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves back in 1990. But it was a trip to see the much-anticipated new Star Wars film that tipped the 39-year-old over the edge. He's now calling on cinema chains and even the government to bring in a blanket ban on popcorn at the movies. Mike, a self-employed author, said the noise is something that's always bothered me ever since I was a little kid. But it was the popcorn noise running, ruining Star Wars that really did it for me. I was really looking forward to that film. Mike's argument to ban popcorn has been met with agreement from some, gaining 106 signatures. Wow. He's up to 106 signatures. Thank you. If you want to support Mike to ban popcorn at cinema cells, you can just look for Mike Shotton uh, at wetblanket.com. Come on, Mike. Come on! Let people eat popcorn! Sorry to get so... (laughs) So emotional about the subject? I didn't think I'd get that emotional about it. I think he's got that problem where where hearing people eat makes you upset. There's some people that they're really sensitive to sound. It's like high but sensitivity and they hear people chewing and it really bugs them. I think we both know how to fix it though. We do. There's a very quick fix and if 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 Mike wants to get some help, just remember. Taste it. It's a great way to pop your popcorn, too. He will never talk about how it bothers him again. That is, there is a therapy called electroshock therapy. Oh, yeah. So we could probably get Mike to give up this idea with just a little bit of tasing. Tase it. Ah, Okay, I'm good. I'm good. I like popcorn. Eat some more. Eat it louder. Anyway, as you know, we like to end the show talking about a hero. And, man, have we got a real hero for you today. The hero of the day is a principal, Susan Jordan, who is the principal at Indiana Elementary School, and she died saving the lives of her students on Tuesday. Last May, the students and staff of Amy Beverland Elementary School told Miss Susan Jordan 
exactly how they felt about her. They made a video and they said, thank you, Miss Jordan, so much for all you do. And the 11-minute tribute just talked about uh, how much they loved Miss Jordan. So she knew before this accident took place last Tuesday how much she was loved. Principal Susan Jordan pushed some kids out of the way of a bus before it hit her, the bus driver told authorities. Her last act came at the end of school on Tuesday. Jordan was helping load kids for a ride home when one of the buses suddenly jumped the curb and the bus driver told firefighters that she's not sure why the bus lurched forward, but she saw Jordan push several students out of the way, according to Rita Reith um, with the fire department. They loved her, she said. Up to the minute that she was alive, she was still helping kids. She saved both. T- um, she saved some students. Both of them were 10-year-olds who were taken to the hospital in serious condition, but with non-life-threatening injuries. So to an amazing educator and a human being, um, Susan Jordan, you're the hero of the day, Townsend's heroes. And again, folks, that's that's heroic, uh, losing your life for some kids. It's, it's more than being the principal. She's just a hero, flat out. That's the show, my friends. We'll uh, be back tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, take care. We'll talk again then.